Hey there. Welcome to Sobertown Podcast. I want to invite you to visit the wonderful world of sobriety. You can visit our website, which is SobertownPodcast.com. This is where you can find sober tools for your sober toolbox, such as Todd's blog on how to successfully manage alcohol triggers and cravings. We also post the Rewired Podcast and the schedule for Zooms. This is where you can find all these beautiful recovery stories that we all share from our heart of our hero's journey. We also have a Facebook community, Sobertown Facebook. I want to introduce myself. My name is Viv. Some of you know me as Sober I Thrive on the I Am Sober app, which we warmly know as IAS. The I Am Sober app is a daily counter that you can download in your app store. It's easy. It's free. And that's where we all met and we contribute to SobertownPodcast.com. On there, there's a community button where we can create community and connection. In addition, I'm a sober recovery coach certified in Roots of Addiction, the joys of sober recovery, and the neuroscience of addiction. I'm also a certified life coach. All you have to do to take advantage of a complimentary call with me for 30 minutes is send me your email. And you can send this email to viv at soberithrive.org. All it takes to change your life is to take the first step and schedule your confidential, complimentary call. Everyone needs a sober cheerleader. And with the SoberTownPodcast.com, we can help create the sober warrior within you. We have a very special guest today. All of you might know her on the IAS app as the big win. She is part of the Sober Squad. She hosts many days, many Thursdays, has hosted other days on the Sober Squad. And she is the one that also contributes to the readings every morning. So I want us to welcome, here's the recovery story of the hero's journey of the big win. Hi, big win. How are you doing? Hi, thank you so much for having me. It's a real honor to be sitting here with you. I, the honor is all mine. I'm, I'm ecstatic that you're here and I am so humbled that you're sharing your journey and I always say it's it's the journey of the dark night of the soul and how you come through on the other side and it's admirable to see that so take us back to how the big win when the big win was a little win I see what you did there. So I was born and raised in North Carolina, and I have obviously two parents, as we all do, <laughs> and one older brother, and my parents are still together to this day. I would say childhood was relatively normal, but I was raised in a pretty strict environment. So what my family is was Catholic. And so there's a fair amount of that that played into the upbringing and some of the kind of like typical Catholic guilt, Catholic shame. And we did, we went to mass every 
every weekend. So I'm very committed in that sense. And my parents were involved in the church and yeah. So, but the Catholicism was something that never really resonated with me. And I still had to go through the process of, you know, confirmation, all of the sacraments. I think just in childhood, my mom is a very good, kind-hearted person. She also has a very big personality, which I don't think if she heard me say that, I don't think that would surprise her. I think, you know, kind of as a product of, of you know, the way my parents were raised and everybody's just doing their best. But it was, as I said, a very kind of strict environment. And there was a lot of, I think, control in that. And there was a certain amount of like my way or the highway. And so what I learned through that, I think, especially as I began butting heads with my mom in, you know, early teenagehood and beyond was that, that ultimately, if, if there, if there was going to be peace in the house, I felt like a lot of that fell on me to create. So even if I was upset, I kind of had to go smooth things over. So there was some people pleasing that was learned that love had to be earned, which isn't to say that she didn't love me, but it, you know, the hearing the phrase of like, I, I'll always love you, but I don't like you very much right now. So those those types of things are, you know, it's like essentially like having to kind of twist yourself into a pretzel to be accepted. And therefore, you know, they're not really having your own boundaries, not really being able to express who you are as a person, like your authentic self, because your authentic self isn't really accepted. So I think that for me created some issues of self-worth and feeling like the way I am is not okay. And the only way for me to kind of make it in this world is to try to make myself as small and so what I'm looking for, like, uh, like as most parents do and not out of lack of love, but because they're trying to teach us or instill us what is good and what is bad and what is good and what is bad sometimes it can invalidate the way we feel mm-hmm. not i don't want to feed words but you know but sometimes that we feel i felt in my own life that i needed to please my mother in the way that she was good for her and that negated my feelings of what was good for me Hmm. Yeah, absolutely. And if there's a very, or a relatively narrow idea of this is what my daughter is supposed to be and how she's supposed to act and the things she's supposed to be interested in and all of that, and this is what her life path is supposed to be. And, and then you have a daughter who is very different <laughs> from that idea, then it's hard to, I can imagine as a parent, difficult to reconcile. And then if there's there's not an ability to kind of accept the child as she is and instead still kind of try to force this particular path, that, of course, you know, creates a lot of conflict and it creates a lot of, I guess, difficulty for the child, right? Because ultimately the parent is the authority figure and you do have to do things the parent's way. And so, 
yeah, it's like it creates this environment of it's not really okay to be who you are. Like you need to be this way instead and do this or else there's going to be a lot of conflict. And there was a lot of conflict. (laughs) So, (laughs) well, and it's interesting because you hear that a lot that like mothers and daughters tend to, when the daughter hits teenage years, that there tends to be a lot of conflict. Like that's the normal thing. But, you know, I was looking around at my friends and even, you know, once getting to college and viewing, excuse me, friends from college, their relationships with their mothers, I wasn't seeing a whole lot of that. You know, of course there was some, but the, the, I mean, and, you know, memory is fallible, but in my mind, my mom and I were screaming at each other almost every single day for years, you know? And so it's like that, or, you know, until like I eventually... I ran upstairs, slammed the door. Uh, my brother one time, by the way, stomped up the stairs behind me and slammed his door just to make fun of me. It's like, thanks for the support. <laughs> but he was sick of it, you know? Like, it's like when there's incessant fighting in your household, it gets really old. I mean, fighting between my mom and me. But <laughs> yeah, but like, I, I felt like what my mom and I were doing was extreme in comparison to what I was seeing with my friends. But my friends also had, well, of course, every person is different, but they, they had in my mind mothers who had less of this like strict idea of how their daughters were supposed to be. And also, you know, they're, as I, you know, as I said, my parents were pretty strict. So my friends were allowed to do things that of course that I felt like I should be allowed to do since everybody else was allowed to, that I wasn't able to do. And that created conflict because I wanted to be, I've always been about experiences and that's more important to me than material things. And so I wanted to be out experiencing and I was often instead having to stay home and, you know, cause my mom was a homebody. So, well, it's like, I wanted to be out with friends or like with have that, that social connection and this, uh, you know, is important later the, the social connection and later like the partnership piece, like those were very important to me. And, you know, you can't have those if you're sitting in your room by yourself, especially back in the, well, I guess it was like 90s. <laughs> like I'm, I'm about to be 41. So, you know, this is like teenage years were like late 90s and there's no like cell phones. There's none of that. Right. So it's like, you know, I'm sitting in my, in my room with my book. <laughs> yeah. So it's, you know, I, I just, I kind of craved that and and not to say that I didn't have any of it, but I wasn't, yeah, I wasn't able to kind of experience the world as fully as I wanted to, which is all to say, like when I got to college, it's that unfortunately very kind of classic story of if you're in a a pretty strict environment and, you you know, as soon as you're free of it, it's like you you just go nuts, right? Like, so... But with that said, my family, they're not, my parents are not big drinkers. And even in the more extended family, which we didn't spend tons of time with, but there wasn't, it was, you know, you hear sometimes people have these family parties and they're like, they go, you know, lots of drinking. That wasn't the case with my family. We do have on both sides, my dad and mom's side, there is a history of, of alcohol issues and issues with you know, mental illness or depression and such. So that does for sure exist. But I I did not grow up in an environment where there was heavy drinking. And in fact, even in, in high school and, you know, I was never around a crowd of people who was big into drinking, you know, and 
certainly wouldn't have been allowed to hang out with them anyway had they existed, you know? So, so it wasn't, you know, my, the first time that I got drunk that I could like in, in my memory, I think was the summer after I graduated from high school, but that, that first drunk experience, I got blackout drunk and (laughs) That so I remember feeling like I didn't feel anything, and you know, and drinking more and more and more, and then not then that's it. Like that's all I have from that evening. Because then it was like I'm still, you know, doing whatever I'm doing, but I'm like my, you know, my brain has exited the building here. So, and that unfortunately is kind of the story. You know, that it's funny how that first drunken night is is like. <laughs> sets the president it sets the precedent <laughs> exactly like precedent it's like this is this is what my mo and drinking is going to be so i never vomited from drinking i always like when i drank to excess which was frequently i blacked out and that created a lot of really embarrassing and dangerous scenarios because when you're not in you're not present at all but your body is still you know out and about in the world, it's that's just not great. Right, right. right. How old were you um, uh, about when you took your the first drink? That's a good question that I don't really know. So I was allowed on a, like a rare occasion to just have like a tiny sip of beer, but that was it. No more than a sip. It was more just like we're gonna like if if a kid was like, I want to try your coffee or something, you know, it's like. Kids shouldn't be drinking coffee, but here, have a sip of it, right? So I don't know exactly when, but I do remember liking the taste of beer, like um, from the start. I don't ever have a, you know, sometimes it's like you hear about kids who have to, they try and they're like, oh, because it's poison. Like, why would you like it, right? It's like disgusting, but I always liked the taste of it, or at least as far as I can remember. And so then I got to where I would like start asking for the sip of beer, but again, never like in a, it, nowhere even close to an amount that would make you intoxicated. And yeah, alcohol, like, I'm sorry, like yeah, hard liquor. I don't, I don't remember. I, it must've been later in. Later in life? Later oh. on, as, yeah, like once I was more like, a, I mean, you know, late teenagehood or something. So the, the experience or the experience that you had in the blackout, how, because that was your first blackout approximately what age were you i think i think i was a, i think i was 18 About yeah 18. i mean it's pretty late because you know again a lot of people start drinking really early in life oh yeah <laughs> yeah so relatively yeah 18 years old you know you're you're experiencing you're out and about so and then all of a sudden you're like all right let's go let's yeah. go for it <laughs> Yeah, because then it's like, okay, if that was the summer after I graduated high school, you know, a couple of months later, I went to college. And it was, I mean, I could not wait to get out of my parents' house. And my mom could not wait to have me out of her house. So, I mean, you know, and of course, like you go from this pretty strict environment to suddenly being allowed to make all of your own choices, whereas before all, you know, most of your choices were made for you. And so it was like, wow, I, this is what freedom feels like. Yeah. So of course, I mean, I think as is pretty common with people who, you know, move to a campus to attend college, there's a lot of drinking, of course. So, so, you know, the first until I, I guess like I turned 21, 
I think my junior year of college. So, you know, the first two years you don't like, you know, there's access to alcohol, but it's not like you can really go buy it for yourself. I do think I had a fake ID, but (laughs) (laughs) I used once and it it served it. I had, I guess, luckily, unluckily, just memorized the address. Somebody told me right before I used it, they're like, you need to memorize the address in case they ask you, because I did not look anything like the girl in the picture. (laughs) Like nothing. And I hand it to the guy at the gas station and he's looking at it and he looks up at me and he's like, you know, that like back and forth. And he's like, what's your address? So I spit it out and I mean, he knew like, and and then I walked out of the gas station parking lot and the police pulled up and I was like, oh my God, you know, because like, I thought I was like, he pushed the button underneath the counter or whatever. And I was like, I'm going to get arrested. (laughs) It, yeah, coincidence. Scared the shit out of me enough to that I never use that fake idea. <laughs> so there's my one fake idea. And I'm like such a like goody two shoes straight lady. Yeah. You know what I mean? Like clear love. It's like, yeah. So uh, yeah. So I guess like in college, I, you know, there's the social drinking, the parties, all of that. And I was always like so happy to be able to go and get wasted. And so a lot of the drinking to excess, you know, at these parties and and the blackouts and all of that, or, you know, or like super, if not full blackout, like very fuzzy next day. But, you know, it's, uh, you kind of feel like uh, everybody's doing that until, until everybody's not. And suddenly like you start becoming the pariah because I, you know, I've always been a, a highly sensitive person. I'm very empathic and I'm, you know, with the, this high sensitivity, I think comes a lot of uh, like big emotion, which, you know, if, if you're in a group of college age kids or even high schoolers, it's kind of like everybody just wants to have a good time. Like nobody wants to be dealing with your big feelings. You know what I mean? So, and I was always, like, I think even in, even as, you know, young as middle school, I remember dealing with depression. So that's all kind of, you know, mixed in. And, you know, I'm, my parents got married they met in college, got married right after college. And for whatever reason, I then got it in my mind that this is what you do. And I, you know, wanted a career, but I kind of expected I'm going to go to college. I'm going to find my husband, going to get married, have the picture perfect life, whatever. And so I am like then meeting boys in college with that mentality and you know, but there's, there's still boys and it's, 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 you know, they're not interested in that per se, but like, it's like, sorry. So what I'm trying to say here is like, I started, you know, with this idea of like, I have to change myself to be liked. I have to earn people's love. So I find myself in college, like pairing up with men or boys who are not available. They're not like they're available enough to make it confusing for me, but they're not really available and they're not necessarily treating me well. And therefore, you so you mix alcohol into that. You mix my sensitivity. Sometimes I was the happy, fun, drunk, but more often than not, I was like this emotional, sad, depressed, drunk, and, and a drunk who was drinking too much, right? So sometimes people are having to take care of you. And again, you know, college, it's like fun, party. Nobody wants to be with sad girl or nobody wants to have to babysit somebody, right? And so I just kind of got like it, you know, as that time progressed in college, I, I kind of got labeled or felt like I was labeled with this like crazy lids, right? Because people are seeing my responses to this behavior with, with, you know, men or 
boys and one particular boy, but they're not seeing his actions that are happening, you know, just between the two of us that are kind of contributing to my emotional responses that are then like more public because their parties are drunk or, or whatever. So with that, like what ends up happening is that, you know, I get this label of like crazy Liz and then I'm like, it, it, when when the friend group is seeing these moments of disrespect, you know, that the when a guy is treating me with disrespect, they and I kind of feel like I deserve that treatment. And so nobody's saying like, hey, that's not okay. They're saying, well, you know, I mean, this, this you know, look how she's, she's acted and, you know, you can't blame them or whatever. So, and ultimately what happens is that I feel more and more separated from, you know, the group of friends. So even, you know, I, one of the things in my, in my life, you know, I think even until recently is that I've, I've never felt like a complete outcast, but I've always, I've never felt like an insider either. So it's like I stand on the periphery of a social circle and look in, but don't really belong. And, you know, in, <clears throat> excuse me, in college, I'm the, the more, the crazier I'm acting, the more and more I'm moving to the outside or like farther away from the circle at all. So I, be I start to become pretty isolated. Right. And they're not seeing the backstory of, you know, of the part where the guy is giving you the mixed signals. Right. Either they're just seeing the after effect while you're under the influence of alcohol and reacting because, as we know, in most cases, we may, you know, when we're big feelers, we'll hold it in. And then, you know, the mixed signals that the guy is giving you and he's acting in a certain way and maybe you're getting the mixed signal and that coupled, it sounds like, with the idea of this is where I'm going to meet my future husband, you know, because, I mean, we're young, we're impressionable mm -hmm. and that's what we think. And so coupled with the alcohol and the mixed signals, it's a perfect storm for Liz to react and be reactive at that point because now the inhibitions are drawn down and and also we know it's a, alcohol is a depressant. Mm -hmm. Yeah, and also the piece of like, it's because of the mixed signals, all I have to do is keep contorting myself until I have earned his love because I, again, like love has to be earned, right? So it's, yeah, it's, that was tricky, I guess. And then, so I started, and Viv, you and I didn't talk about this yesterday, but I started trying to figure out a, a way away from the emotional pain in college. And so I have memories of <laughs> in the dorm building there, of course, you know, staircase that goes all the way up to the roof access. And at the top of the staircase was a fire extinguisher. And I have memories of like punching, I feel terrible about this now for like a poor building maintenance and like the cost and all of that. But like at the time, like I punched the fire extinguisher glass, uh -huh. or, you know, the glass to access the fire extinguisher. And, you know, of course, like that cuts up your hand, but then I would take the shards of glass and start cutting. I'm just trying to get away. Like anything is better than the emotional pain and the loneliness and the 
yeah, well, I guess at this point, I'm like feeling even a little bit like an outcast because nobody, nobody wants to touch, like, as in, you know, nobody wants to, it's like, keep crazy Liz at arm's length. Okay. So take us, uh, take us to that point where you're with a fire extinguisher. Is the alarm going off or what's happening? <laughs> no, luckily, <laughs> Sarah, like, terribly embarrassing, right? No, it was just me up there sitting at the top of the stairwell with shards of glass from the fire extinguisher case and like slicing my wrist. And it wasn't with the intent of trying to, you know, kill myself, but it was just a anything I like this physical pain is so much better than the emotional pain that I'm in. Like I just can't, I have to get away from this emotional pain, right? And I think that was probably before I was old, you know, I had, was legal and there, or was of age to be able to buy alcohol and, or I was already, there's probably, I might've already been drunk. I mean, I don't know, but it, it was very, I mean, I, very much like, I just, I want to get away from this emotional pain. So I started working a lot because, well, I, I needed the money, but also I think it's easier to, not deal with the fact that you don't have many friends if you're working all the time. Plus, I was doing a full course load at, at school at, at the university. So I just, it kept me busy. And so, you know, at the, at, when I was old enough to, at some point, you know, you get a shift beer at the end of the night because I was working at a, a bar restaurant. And of course, the shift beer turns into many beers. And, and this is when I first remember. And probably because it was, I was able to finally buy alcohol for myself. But this is when I would start buying booze and taking it back to my room and drinking alone. So it became, I mean, there was still a, a fair amount of social drinking, but then there was also this isolated drinking. And this was the way, or when it started, I would <laughs> rent a video cassette at Blockbuster from the international films aisle because I was a huge dork like that. I love a subtitle movie. It would take it home, you know, get my six pack of beer and I would sit and watch the movie and drink my six pack of beer. And that was how I relaxed. And, you know, after work, do all that work and, you know, class and all of that. And it's just, it's, it's how I escaped. Right. Right. And so, and that of course becomes an, again, another pattern in my life of my, my way of like, relaxing, zoning out, escaping. So I also studied abroad twice or so a summer semester and then a spring semester in Germany, both both times of Germany. You know, of course, same thing, lots of drinking, emotionally unavailable men, like all of the patterns, the blackouts, everything just keeps, you know, repeating itself, right? But at this point, you know, you're still in college and think like this, this is kind of what people do, like just, you know, not really thinking of it as a problem per se. And, you know, and being in the in European culture, thinking I'm like super cool for being able to <laughs> hold a lot of liquor, beer or whatever. And, you know, thinking it's elegant and I'm so sophisticated as an American, you know, if whatever, like this bullshit, right? <laughs> so and that was, so I was in college from 2000 to 2004. At the beginning of 2005, I moved to Chicago to go to grad school and so this, it's the same kind of situation where the social and there's a lot of social drinking and there's a lot of alone drinking. I met my first husband 
while in grad school. He and so his sister and I studied together. We were really good friends. She's German. And you met over there? And yeah, and then I met him in Germany because their father passed away. A friend of mine in Germany was getting married. So I went over one summer to, you know, to support both of those friends. And so I met my best friend's brother and we didn't start dating then. Obviously, it's a horrible time for for him and her and, the, and their family. But he and his mom came over the following Christmas to spend Christmas with his sister and we started dating then because I was, I had a car and was like driving people everywhere. And yeah, so we started dating. We had a long distance international relationship for a while. And then he started, a, I think he started a PhD program at the same grad school I was in and moved to the States. We moved in together and then we got married pretty quickly, like much quicker, I think, than, you know, you normally would. And part of that has had to do, it's by no means was a green card marriage because it was a legit relationship, a legit marriage, but it's partially also trying to figure out how do we, you know, keep it to where we can be in the same country and have a relationship, you know, that was, we got married in the summer of 2008. We adopted two, two rescue dogs, which just comes important a little bit later, but Ginger and Nori. And I think something that maybe I should point out here, because they become so important to the story, is that. Okay. Sorry. It's all right. Take a minute. Man, I knew I was going to cry. <laughs> of course, I'm going to cry. Of course. Ugh. And we can cry. I'm such a crier. I wish I weren't a crier. <laughs> no. Life would be so much easier if I weren't such a crier. Yeah. We don't drink anymore, so we feel our feeling. Uh, but, but you know, you say that I, I hear people say that, that they like they they stop drinking and then suddenly they feel things again. I'm like, Viv, I felt things the whole time. <laughs> That's why I was drinking. I didn't want to feel things and it didn't work. I guess but I still drink anyway. I, I wish more people showed feelings. I wish we all, oh. you know, were able to. That's what makes us human, living this awakened life in sobriety. So it's a beautiful thing. Oh, thank you for saying that. Okay. So Ginger Nori. So I, you know, I, I mentioned earlier that raised Catholic Catholicism didn't, never made sense to me, like to my soul. So what I've realized later in life is that my spirituality is very rooted in nature. And I love I have a deep love for animals. I, you know, we'll probably talk about this a little bit later. I volunteer at a local wildlife shelter. So dogs to me, I mean, in any animals, but especially dogs are very important. I believe that we have soul families. So souls that we encounter in this lifetime that we maybe have encountered in some kind of previous version of existence. Not super clear on the details of that, but that's just what makes sense to me. And then and in some ways, like if you, you hear people talk about guardian angels and that I feel like dogs in a way are our protectors and not not necessarily in the like, I'm going <laughs> to I'm going to bite an intruder type protector, but like that they there are companions, you know, that they're soul companions. And Absolutely. so they're very important to me. OK, so we adopt Ginger and Nori are together for a few years, but then we split in the spring of 2011. The reason for 
the split, I mean, of course, you know, we got together very quickly and this is terrible, but the, a lot of the details of it are, are fuzzy to me at this point. And, it, you know, I'm very lucky that he and I, we still have a, a, a good relationship. We're still, you know, friends. And so luckily it wasn't a, a terrible, horrible breakup scenario. But what I do know is that our marriage, for various reasons that weren't really either of our faults, became sexless very quickly. Mm-hmm. And for me, and and I think for him too, but, you know, physical touch is very important. It's something that I've, you know, my entire life have searched for is, you know, this partner, this best friend, but, you know, this, the physical relationship is, is very important to me. Yeah. So I, 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 another thing that played a role in the end of our marriage is that when we started, when we got together, we were on the same page about children and that we, neither of us was sure if we wanted children and then his sister had a baby and, or, well, it wasn't just her, but uh, people around us started having babies mm-hmm. just, you know, just at that age. <laughs> like you go through that phase of like, everybody's getting married, everybody's having babies. And, uh, you know, we both saw that as a very beautiful thing, but I saw it as a beautiful thing I wanted. And he saw it as a beautiful thing he wanted to observe from the outside, but not take part in himself. And so that, you know, coupled with the sexless marriage and we started, you know, things start falling apart, you bicker, blah. Luckily, I think we ended the marriage or we moved apart quickly enough to where we were able to save the friendship. So I'm grateful for that. When I, we both had to move out, we both had to get new apartments and, you know, grad students in Chicago and the dogs came with me. So Ginger Nori came with me. Toward the end of the marriage and afterward, as I'm coping with the end of my relationship, my, my, you know, my drinking throughout this entire grad school period had been, you know, more than, what is it they like, we talked about how the, you, you look up like, what, what is like the acceptable amount for a woman to drink during a week, right? Like my, my drinking was always above that, right? Like I was never in the, the allowed range. But during this period, it got really bad. So we're talking, I mean, it, I went from having like, you know, a glass or two of wine per day to two bottles of wine every day. So that's, you know, that's what was happening. And I could, and I knew, like, I knew that I was using it. I was using wine as a way to cope. I was using it as like, I was self-medicating, right? To cope with my failed marriage. And how long did the marriage last? How long from both of you together from the friendship, let's say, to the culmination of of the marriage? So I think we met in 2006. I'm kind of fuzzy on the details there, but we married in 2008. We split in 2011. And interestingly enough, we did not get divorced until 2016. Yeah. And that, that was because, you know, again, it was an amicable, a relatively amicable breakup. We were both grad students. Getting divorced in Chicago is very expensive. We didn't have the money to do it. And then after, like once, you know, then, you know, as I'll talk about in a minute, I moved to Germany and then Atlanta and he moved to other places. And so it was just kind of like, uh, there was just no, it, it almost like, I almost forgot about it for a while. Cause it's just, you know, there was like, other, like not getting remarried. And so it was just whatever. No, no sense of urgency to take care of. <laughs> Who wants to deal with like the bureaucracy piece of this, you know? Like, oh, <laughs> so, okay. So then that, that piece you were saying, did you, so did you move, did you move from Chicago 
and he moved so to Germany or how did that happen? So we were both, we, when we split up, we both stayed in Chicago. We were both still in our graduate programs at the, at the same university. And, but I, so I was working on my PhD. I was going to be a German professor. <laughs> I love it. I love it. <laughs> that didn't work out so well either. Like if we're making a list of all the stuff that didn't work out so well for me, that was one of them. <laughs> Yeah, I was I was studying to be a German professor. And, you know, during my because I was doing that during my all throughout grad school, I was making these trips to Germany. So I spent a lot of time in Germany during grad school. Part of that was because of my husband, you know, especially when he was still living over there. But there were other things like I was teaching that same summer program that I had taken part in as an undergrad. I began teaching for that in the summers. And also I had like a research grant. So I was over in Berlin for one summer to, for, you know, stuff like that. So I'm over in Germany in the summer of 2012. And we are working at, or we had this like partnership. The American university had a partnership with the German university. And I'm talking to the people at the German university. And they say that they need somebody to join their English department to teach English. And so I'm, I'm like, wow, this is kind of an, a, a, you know, pretty amazing opportunity. I convinced myself I can still finish my dissertation from Germany. Spoiler alert, that didn't happen. <laughs> <laughs> well, you're like, I can do it all. <laughs> I can do it all. I'm like, how do you, how do you pass down this opportunity? You know, I'm like, I'm young, I'm single now, or well, single-ish, because <laughs> I'm still married. <laughs> you know, yeah. So it's like, you know, this is kind of the opportunity of a lifetime. So let me do this. So I came back to Chicago and within a matter of weeks, I packed up my life there into two suitcases, sold all my stuff. My dogs, I took to my parents. They were, you know, uh, gracious enough to take my dogs in for temporarily because I didn't, when I moved to Germany or when I got on that flight, as an American, you're allowed to stay for 90 days without any additional paperwork as on a tourist visa. But I didn't know that they would let me stay longer than that. They, they, I could not get that work permission or that work visa until I went over there and showed them paperwork and proof of potential employment, which I then had to first go and get because I had this, you know, I was teaching English for the, the university, but that was only a couple of hours a week. So I had to then fill in all the gaps and prove to the German government that I wasn't going to try to like mooch off their system, which is right. I don't mean that word. I mean, like, that I wasn't going to have to rely on right. their support or their taxpayer money, whatever. Makes sense. Makes sense. You have to you have to be employed. Like, you have to be, have a reason to be there and to stay there. And you also have to show that, like, a German person could not be doing, that you're not taking a job from somebody who could be doing that job. But as a native English speaker, that was a pretty easy case to make, you know, if I'm teaching English. So... Okay, so the dogs don't come with me. They stay with my parents because I don't even know when I get on the plane to go to Germany, I don't even know if they're going to let me say if they're going to kick me out. So I guess luckily, they I was able to get that all sorted out, get an apartment, which I didn't have either because you don't want to rent an apartment if you don't know if you're allowed to stay. So I kind of just getting set up over there. And then I flew back. So that was August of 2012, December of 2012, I flew back to the States to pick up my dogs to take them to Germany. But like backing up a little bit, I'm so I'm now in Germany. 
you know, this is like August 2012 to December. Living over there, there was a lot of loneliness. There was some, I was treated kind of badly by, you know, another one of these like dude situations. <laughs> so somebody I had a history with and he was pretty mean when I got there. And then I got involved with another, I'm really, really good at getting involved with <laughs> these types of guys, <laughs> another not emotionally available dude. And so shortly before I was supposed to fly home December of 2012 to get the dogs, I, the, this, this guy, this latest guy comes over he has plans with his friends that night. I was in a really, I don't remember the exact reasons for why I was in a very like, bad place. I'd already been drinking. And so there was, there was that, like I was definitely already a little bit tipsy, but I was really, really upset and really just needed, like I needed a friend. I just needed somebody to be there with me. And so I asked him to cancel his plans, which is something I, as a people pleaser, as somebody who hates to ask for help, I would never like normally do, but it was that bad that I asked him to stay and he didn't, he left. After that, I was like, I just, again, it's all that emotional pain, the abandonment, the constant, like nothing I do like is enough. You know, it's like, I'm that I'm either too much or I'm not enough. And I like, no, no person it that that isolation the loneliness the the no like i'm i'm t i all i want is like a partnership or somebody like my person i just want my person and right. i thought this guy was my person and he's like clearly not my person but like you know what i mean it's, it's just that and i so i drank a lot more alcohol and i had i so during my time in Chicago, I started seeing psychiatrists and therapists and we, we actually went to marriage counseling too, my first husband, but I was, you know, I knew I had these issues with depression and, and anxiety and was trying to find something to help with all of that. And so I had, what that means is that I had these bottles of medication that I'd brought with me from the States, from, from all of my psychiatric dabbles. And so I swallowed all of the pills that I had. And a lot of alcohol, you know, obviously trying to kill myself. And I just like to give you a picture of my mind and the people, how extreme the people pleasing is. I, after I, you know, swallowed all of that, I <laughs> saw that I had some dirty dishes sitting on the counter and I didn't want anybody who had to come in and deal with my corpse to have to also deal with my dirty dishes. So Germany had, my apartment was a, in a pretty old building. And so it didn't have like the like I guess typical American hot water heater where you just turn on the hot water faucet and you get hot water there was this thing that sat over the sink a water boiler where you had to fill it up with water boil the water and then it would come out through the sink faucet but because I was at that point so out of it because of the I guess our narcotics or all the pills and the and the all of the booze all of the alcohol I turned on the hot water faucet without and I scalded myself, really bad burns on my hand, which then followed me, you know, to home, to my trip, you know, when I went home to pick up my dogs and everybody saw it and they're like, what happened to you? And I was just like, oh, I was just dumb. And I, like, I burnt my hand. So I was supposed to teach an English lesson early the next morning. And I remember trying to text my student to tell her I wasn't going to be there. And I couldn't. 
or I try, like I woke up and tried to do it before the lesson started and couldn't. I kept passing, like waking up, passing out, waking up, passing out. I, at some point, I was able to like type enough to send it to her, but it was it was like way after the lesson started. And again, anybody who knows me knows that I'm like I I'm, I'm not flaky or well, I try not to be, but you know, it's like especially in a professional setting, it's like I don't just not show up or you right. know. So it was it was because I physically was incapable of getting that message sent. And I don't so I mean I woke up on my own that next day and was really upset that I woke up. So as we talked about yesterday, I I woke up and it wasn't a feeling of relief, like, oh my God, I can't believe I did that. Thank goodness I woke up today. I mean, you know, so it wasn't like a, a, a bad drunken decision that I luckily woke up from. It was a, I woke up and now not only did I not succeed, but now I feel like a failure because I couldn't even manage to do this. And I saw all of the emotional pain that caused me to do that in the first place. Of course, it's still there. And now on top of that, I'm dealing with the emotional pain of like, okay, this is where I've gotten like to the point of trying to to kill myself. So I don't remember. No, nobody found me. I woke up. I must have at some point looped in the one for, or, you know, one of the friends that I had there, I think had like two friends total. And I remember her, of course, like the, the, that those couple days are a little bit fuzzy so I don't remember exactly what happened, but I do remember her being in my apartment at some point. And I remember her getting in touch with that guy and him not, you know, shockingly <laughs> running over and, you know, trying to be there for me. He, he, th- those things didn't happen. And yet that relationship continued. So there was a period of him I think feeling like, oh, well, this is what she tried to do because of me, which of course it's not just about him, but he was part of it. And then like, oh, I've got to stay away from that, but until like, until he's not staying away from it anymore. And then the relationship starts again, which of course I have my role in that too. But anyway, so yeah, I, and then I guess, you know, I just, you just go right back to doing life because what else are you supposed to do? And then I flew home, I guess maybe a week or two later, picked up the dogs, flew the dogs back to Germany, and, you know, life just goes on. So the reason I, you know, the suicide attempt happened, because I, I, not the reason for, but the reason I allowed myself to do that is because my dogs were with my parents at that point. And I knew that they were in a home and that they would be taken care of. But once I fly my dogs over to Germany, then it's like, well, I'm not going to do anything to risk like my dogs being left here alone. Still in Germany, I am teaching English for a while. Eventually, I start working for a teeny tiny translation company, trying to get like job security and health benefits and all of that. And, you know, when I moved to Germany, I thought I'd stay there forever. But instead, my experience there was, I guess, harder than I anticipated. Part of that was because there were, I mean, it was hard for me to find real job prospects because again, you have to prove that German person couldn't be doing the job. There were just some some other things that happened to me as I think as a young foreigner that were hard, especially um, around my dogs. I got harassed a lot by the people in my neighborhood because of my dogs. 
even though the dogs weren't, you know, neither I nor the dogs were, were doing anything wrong. But it, so there's like a lot of heaviness that surrounds my experience there. And also, especially, especially once my dogs were there, things got a lot heavier because of how I was treated with them being there. So, and I guess in the fall of 2013, I decided, or I started, I didn't decide, but I kind of started thinking about moving back to the States, but no job prospects. You know, I was, I, I had my master's, but I'd essentially quit my PhD. I'd been freelance teaching English. I started working for this tiny translation company, but I'd been there for like two months, you know, so I didn't have any kind of like work history and like, I don't know where I'd go. I don't know who would even hire me. Like what, you know, how am I even going to make this colossal international move back to the States? And then, you know, one of those like serendipitous things, like an email pops up in my, from some job board. I don't know if it was LinkedIn or what, you know, one of those that you normally just delete. And for some reason I decided to open it and it, it, there was a job listed in there for a translation company I'd never heard of. It was actually for like a Germany-based job. But I was like, oh, I've not heard of this. Click. And then up pops this posting for they need somebody in their their translation technology department to be trained in Germany, but to move to or to live in Atlanta. So it's a win-win for, well, for me, but also for them because I'm already I'm American, so they don't have to figure out my visa situation. I'm I'm already in Germany, so they don't have to fly me over to train me. You know, I'm already here. It's like, so I just go to their headquarters in Germany. I train and then they, I fly to Atlanta. So I do my training in Germany. And then at the end of 2013, start of 2014, I moved the dogs back across the ocean to Atlanta. And so in Atlanta, I'm, you know, working for this translation company. I start doing online dating. Um, I think this is, yeah, well, I mean, this is like when the apps are starting to become like more known and popular. And then it's like, you know, it's like, let's, I always mess up this idiom, the wash, rinse, repeat or whatever. <laughs> I'd like it. It's like lots of, so I'm doing the online dating. So there's narcissists, I'm, you know, attracting narcissists, emotionally unavailable men. There's heavy drinking, you know, on my part, there's the isolated drinking, and it's just, you know, the blackouts, the embarrassing, horribly embarrassing moments, all of that, just like over and over and over again. And because, you know, like the message that I'm getting is that like, yeah, I just, I, I, I'm, I'm trying to so hard to be what they want me to be. And it doesn't matter how hard I try. It is never enough. I am never enough. Nobody wants to be with me. And it's it's not like I was just like trying with anybody, but like the men who I was finding and who at least initially appeared to be interested in me were expressing interest in me. Ultimately, it's like I would, you know, you would start this, not relationship, but you would start kind of dating or talking. And it's like, oh, I feel like we're on the same page. And then I would find myself right back in that same scenario of like, nope, he's not actually available or I'm just feeding his ego or I'm taking care of him. And, you know, meanwhile, he's off looking for other women, you know, elsewhere. So, yeah. So, but this point I'm in my early mid thirties and, you know, I'm starting to kind of feel the pressure of the biological clock. You know, I'm also getting really burnt out on dating. 
And even though I told myself I would never date another German man, uh, nothing against my first ex-husband, by the way, but more like the the other situations that I've talked about, I, you know, I'd been doing the online dating for a while and up pops this picture of, you know, a dude and I'm looking at his uh, education and it's like, yeah, it's, it's clearly a German school. And I'm like... <laughs> Damn it! But he's cute. <laughs> so I'm like, er, what to do? And so you know, I swipe, we match, and this. So this was early twenty, like beginning of twenty sixteen, that I match with my now second ex German husband. <laughs> Winning. <laughs> it's you know what they. Uh, I've said it before. It's different places, but same faces. You know, and it's I I believe honestly that it alcohol has a lot to do with it, because since we're in that same pattern of drinking in and it's almost ritualistic what we do with the drinking, how would the ritual not show up somewhere else, too, because we're not breaking pattern. Mm -hmm. Right. So it's. It is surprising that, uh, to find a, another German person here. Yeah. But also, you know, it's it's still indicative of how the drinking is still going side by side. And, and something to mention is also how the relationship with drinking, because as we discussed yesterday, drinking becomes the relationship too. Mm-hmm. Yeah, and it really cycles in the sense of when things were hard, the drinking, of course, increased. When things were better or happier, the drinking decreases, right? So like when I started that relationship with my second husband and things seemed hopeful and encouraging and, you know, we're getting up and going to the gym together at six o'clock in the morning, it's like, oh, well, the drinking still is, is happening, but it's less, right? Like it's on the down, like, yeah, right. down tick, right? Right. But, you know, as things in the relationship start falling apart, it's like, there it goes right back up. And yeah, but it's never gone, right? Like it's never not a presence. It's never not a part of my every day or almost every day. So I think I remember at some point in my early 30s trying to think back of like, when was the last day I did not have just some kind of alcohol? And I could like, I couldn't, couldn't come up with it. Like it's been so many years of drinking, daily drinking. That's not necessarily like heavy drinking every day, but like that I don't, it is such a part of my everyday in the same way that coffee is a part of an everyday that I, I don't even know what life looks like without drinking. Right. Like, how do you have dinner without a glass of wine? You know what I mean? Like. And it's so ingrained into the culture. Yeah. Like we mentioned yesterday that it's, you know, coffee in the morning and a drink at night. Yeah. You know, and it's on that that cycle. And like you said, so as and it's understandable, too, that in the marriage or in the marriage and doing other activities, but it's never gone. And as, you know, things progress then it comes back, the drinking comes back as the the comfort, the only comfort that we know. Yeah, for sure. So yeah, and I think if you don't have any tools in your toolbox, 
for coping, right? So it's like if when things are bad in life, if the only tool that you have is alcohol, and, and that's, of course, like, and then you lean on that during the hard times because it's the only medicine, you know, medicine that you have. <laughs> and then, you know, it, it, that obviously, like, it exacerbates the problem. It's, you know, because now not only do you have problems in, say, like, your relationship, but now you also have, like, the problems that the drinking is causing, whether that's, like, bad hangovers, poor health, potential issues with work, or, you know... Uh, just or, or the like for me the most crippling part of it probably was the self hatred because it's like why can't you get your shit together Liz you know do the same thing like the the three a.m. anxiety yes yep or the the waking up in the morning <laughs> I told you <laughs> this is so embarrassing but like the waking up the, in the morning and then the first like. Thought number one, did I drink last night? Thought number two, how much did I drink? Thought number three, did I embarrass myself? So I told you like what I was laughing about is I used to write myself notes and leave them on my bedstand because I'd meet, like I'd be like, Liz, you got yourself to bed all by yourself. You set your alarm. You put the coffee in the coffee maker. Uh, you did not do anything embarrassing. You did not text anybody you did not want to. You did not accidentally like one of your ex's Instagram posts from five years ago. Like that type of note, you know? Because like there were so, so many mornings where I would wake up in a pure panic because I knew I wasn't, you know, it, well, I mean, the blackouts, my God, like when you're out with people are horrible because then you have to ask everybody what you did. But even like the, all the alone drinking, not knowing if, you know, if I'd done, if I'd like gotten into an, I mean, there were times when I'd wake up and I'd gotten into an argument with a friend over like WhatsApp or something and been like, oh, you know? Oh yeah. I've been there. <laughs> I've totally been there. And you're like, what the heck was, how come? Yeah. Like I told, we talked yesterday, I would just hand over the phone. Smart. <laughs> I was not so smart. <laughs> it wasn't. I think it wasn't smart. It was just too many uh, Facebook posts in the random blackouts that the next day I was like, oh, delete. <laughs> At least you can delete those, right? But like you can't delete a message that your friends already read where you like spouted off about something stupid. I don't know. It's, yeah. I hurt so many feelings. Yeah. So there's like. Okay. No, I was going to say, so at that point, you're in, you're in the middle of your relationship. With the second husband? It, that's what we're talking about, right? The second husband? Yeah. So 2016 is uh, beginning of that is when I met him. Mm -hmm. uh, and it, yeah. So we, our relationship, kind of like the previous one, went faster than most relationships do for kind of similar, but somewhat different reasons, mm -hmm. um, which he, so I lived in the city in Atlanta and he lived out in the suburbs and I was renting, he had a house. So we were, uh, we pretty quickly started spending most nights together. I had my two dogs and, you know, I worked in the city, he worked out in the suburbs. So it was this kind of logistical issue. Then my rent was increasing and I couldn't afford to pay it. And so I was going to have to move anyway. And so I ended up moving in with him, let's say like May, June, 2016. So we met in January and by let's call it June, I, we were living together mostly for logistical 
purposes. And, you know, now, now the dogs, I'm not having to like cart dogs back and forth and, or leave them alone if it's like an evening out or something, you know? So yeah. So pretty quickly after I moved in, our relationship again became sexless. And that was a point of big frustration for me because I had been very clear coming into the relationship that I'd come out of a a sexless marriage before and I wasn't going to do that again. Well, turns out I did do that again. And in this case, it felt like, and I'm, you know, he probably has different feelings about this, but like, I, I felt like it was more a lack of interest on his part. And I don't know if it's, you know, are like in me. But it just wasn't something that was a big priority, right? And so that kind of quickly escalated into a pretty big issue for me. And in addition to that, you know, he is a, he's a very black and white thinker. And I think, again, this, I don't, it, if he heard me say this, I don't think it's anything that's like surprising to him or that he would argue with, but he doesn't, he doesn't have a ton of emotional intelligence like that relating to people empathy those are things that are difficult for him and i think you know again i think he would agree with that and so for somebody who is again highly sensitive uh empathetic emotional <laughs> to be with somebody who is pretty unemotional and lacks empathy and it is very black and white, so there's not a lot of gray area. There's not much room for complexity in that. It it was very hard for me, and I mean, sure for him too, because he's he's dealing with some he he's dealing with somebody who he feels like is making a mountain out of a molehill about everything, and I'm dealing with somebody who I feel like is not hearing me. So there's this like this theme throughout life of like what I say doesn't matter. You know, starting with my with my mom, <laughs> continuing through all of these relationships with men. And then I get to this husband and it's like the, the, the epitome of like, what I say doesn't matter because it seems like you cannot hear me. <laughs> I don't know what's happening, but our brains just work very differently, you know? And it's funny because, you know, he's German, I'm American. He's, I mean, he clearly, he speaks German. I speak English, we, but we both speak each other's language. But I would sometimes look at him and be like, I feel like we're speaking two different languages, <laughs> you know? Because you're like, am I am I talking to you in Chinese? Like, why are you not understanding me? <laughs> so, you know, I have my two dogs, Nori and Ginger. They, I adopted them with my first husband. And then they are now living with my second, not yet husband, but second husband and me. And Ginger had always had a lot of, or a fair amount of separation anxiety. But when I was living alone... One, I wasn't gone for as long as I was living out in the suburbs of Atlanta and having to commute into the city every day and back. So that meant I was gone for longer stretches than I used to be. And I don't know, honestly, if like living in the apartments helped too because she could hear other humans around instead of being in a house where there's nothing. But, you know, her her separation anxiety had always been relatively manageable or not very bad. Like it'd be occasionally like a scratch door or... She used to move fruit around the apartment, which I always thought was hilarious. <laughs> but, you know, but once I started doing that long commute, living out in the suburbs, her anxiety steadily increased. And so it went from, you know, th- that occasional scratch doorway to her 
destroying the bat, like destroying walls. And if I tried to, you know, I tried everything, you know, like doggy Xanax, every, you know, I talked to the vet, like tried everything and, you know, tried putting her in the crate and she broke her teeth trying to get out of the crate. So it was bad, bad. And so I realized that as much as I didn't, you know, she'd been with me at this point for six years or six and a half, something like that, seven, almost seven years. I didn't, obviously, nobody wants to rehome their dog, but I, I realized that I tried everything that I could do and that it was no longer a healthy, it, it wasn't fair to her to keep her in that home since I couldn't change, I, you know, any, anything more about my situation or our living situation. So the, the other thing is that Nori, my other dog, had been, since she was two years old at this point, she was six and a half, had, I, she'd had, she had this autoimmune disorder or, you know, we thought it was allergies, took her to vets in Chicago, in Germany, in Atlanta, in the suburbs of Atlanta, trying to figure out what this is, how to treat it. And, you know, so for for four and a half years, she was on constant medication, a lot of prednisone, a lot of steroids in a cone for a lot of the time, trying not to like to keep her from licking her paws. And it just her. Okay, take your time. So her, sorry. You don't have to apologize. So her body was deteriorating and... I, same kind of thing where I'd tried everything that I knew to try and I couldn't fix it. And, you know, I could tell that she was suffering. So Thanksgiving weekend, I took my dogs up to my parents' house. My parents very kindly, I mean, it's it's so incredibly generous of them. They took in Ginger. They, they were at that point retired and, you know, obviously home most of the time. And, and I will say, this was my mom's doing. My, my mom's the one who took Ginger in. So my, my mom's always been a dog person too. And I think she understands that relationship isn't the right word. But yeah, she just... She, you know, she just, she just gets it in a way I think that my dad maybe doesn't. And yeah, so I'm incredibly grateful that they took Ginger in. But so I, that Thanksgiving weekend, I leave Ginger with my parents and then I go back to Georgia and, and I have to have Nori put down. I think losing a pet is always hard for anybody, right? For me, with Nori, she was so young, you know, six and a half. And there was part of me that felt like I had failed her and failed Ginger. Because, you know, I didn't, I wasn't in a high earning job. And, you know, before when I got her, I was in grad school. And so, like, there's not, like, there's no money to speak of. And so, you know, I'm thinking, like, if I had been able to afford to take her to some fancy vet, you know, or like some super specialist who costs like a thousand dollars a session or something like maybe, maybe I could have saved her. And, you know, and I, I ran up a lot of credit card debt trying to help her. Yeah. But I still walked away 
from that devastated and feeling like I'd failed her. I failed Ginger. So it's, you know, essentially I lost in that weekend both dogs, even though I was, you know, again, so lucky that Ginger's with my parents and I'm still, she's still able to be a part of my life, just not in the same way. So when we left the vet, I had my, my, you know, my ex-husband was with me and I had him stop at the grocery store and I was, you know, I was hysterical and I asked him to go in and buy like a lot of wine because, because I told him at this point, I actually wasn't because, you know, you know, we were doing this morning gym thing and all that. And I, you know, I wasn't in one of like the bad phases of my drinking. So I thought, you know, it's like, I'm fine with the level of drinking that I'm doing right now. But I told in my, and he is also not a much of a drinker. He'll have, you know, the occasional beer, but he's never been a big drinker. So there was also that influence of living with somebody who wasn't a big drinker. Whereas like a lot of the previous, they weren't even boyfriends, but situationships were like heavy drinkers, right? So that was new to me being with somebody who was less of a heavy drinker or not a heavy drinker at all, rather. But I told him, I was like, I like, this is, I know this is out of the norm. It was like 10 o'clock on a Saturday morning. I was like, but I just like, this is all I can do. And so he went and bought wine. I, we went home and I just got shit faced, just wasted because I couldn't deal with it. And same thing next day. So that was Saturday. And then Sunday woke up, same thing, just started drinking. And by Sunday night, I, there were a couple of things that happened, but I decided I just didn't, didn't want to be doing it anymore. Like didn't want to be doing any of it anymore. I was supposed to go to work the next day. I didn't know how I was going to show up, (laughs) like drive into the city and pretend like, everything's fine. Like, it's not fucking fine. And so, yeah, I guess I'd been, I'd tried psychiatry again and, you know, like had been back in that same cycle of trying to, to find help, desperately trying to find help for dealing with all of the emotional pain of life in general. And so once again, I had the stockpile of medication because by that point, I'd tried so many medications that they had, the psychiatrist had diagnosed me as treatment resistant with major depression, major depressive disorder and generalized anxiety disorder, whatever. I'm sure I'm watching those terms. And the next stage, the next thing to try was the, has a much nicer term now that I always forget, but the electroshock treatment where they zap your brain. And I honestly would have tried it had it not been something that you have to do at a regular cadence and that you then, at least my understanding that you have to take a couple days off for because, you know, to recover. And I just didn't have that kind of time with my job and couldn't get that kind of time off to do that. So, yeah, so I, I, you know, had gone through this slew of medications, like trying everything, trying to get it right. Were you still drinking? Like in, in, in general or... That's, you know, my question is, when they're doing all these diagnoses, are they asking you, are you drinking? Yeah, they're definitely asking. And I was 
I may have like leaned more toward the <laughs> the the smaller like if I if one week I had I, I'm just making up numbers here, but like if one week I had 10 drinks and the next week was 20, then I was going to lean more toward the 10, you know, like how many drinks I like on average do you have per week? So I was probably fudging the numbers slightly, but I wasn't like directly lying about how much it was. And I, I was being pretty straightforward about that I was drinking and that it was a, it was a regular thing for me. And so they knew that. And of course they discouraged or said, you know, I mean, I knew, I knew my, that alcohol was a depressant and, you know, you have depression, like, and you pour a depressant on top of it. I knew that, like I, my, my rational brain understood that my, my brain also understood if you're, if you're drinking as much as you are with medication, then how do you even know if the medication is like, if it's not helping, how do you know that you've even really given it a chance? Because it's your, it's like this interaction with the alcohol, right? But I couldn't. I couldn't stop drinking. It's like I I couldn't get to the point where I was like, okay, I am willing to try sobriety in addition to this, like this psychiatric medication to get my head in order because I was like, how, how do I cope with like, how do I do life if I don't have alcohol? Like, okay. how do I relax? How do I have fun? How do I do anything? You know, when people ask you about like, what are your hobbies? <laughs> I mean, it's like my hobby was drinking. It's in like, and watching, you know, toward the end, it's like it's drinking and watching, like zoning out to reality television. That's what I do with my free time. So it's like, if you take that away from me, it's like, what am I going to do? And and then you add like all the emotional pain. Like, how am I going to deal with that? Yeah. So I had all those medications. It was Sunday evening. I decided I didn't want to be a part of a world that didn't include my dog anymore. So, you know, Germany repeated. I swallowed a lot of medication and a lot of alcohol. And I'd even at this point Googled trying to figure, because I was like, well, it didn't work the first time. I must have done something wrong. So trying to figure out like how much, like was I, did I not take enough? And none of my attempts were a cry for attention were all they were all me just wanting to end the emotional pain and you know something about depression too is you know people talk about how there's always like you there are you know good and bad times in life right so it's like it's like if somebody says to me now, well, but look at, you know, look at you now and you live at the beach, you have a beautiful son, you have two beautiful dogs, you know, and like, just think if you had succeeded in killing yourself those years ago, you wouldn't think about like this now, you know, and it's like live for the happy, the potential of happy times, right? Well, when you're depressed or alone or isolated or feeling all of those things that I've described about yourself and not, you know, those, those happy times are so fleeting that it's like the, and, and the, all of the, the horrible times accumulate. Right. And so it's like those, you know, two minutes of happiness don't really hold up next to these three months of despair. You know what I mean? 
Absolutely. Like got this like lifetime. So it was, of course, it's about my dogs. And of course it was about that dude in Germany, but it's also this lifetime of accumulation of when, like, where is the happiness? You know, like, where is it? People keep talking about it. Where is it? And, you know, you get glimpses, but like, where's that sustained period of happiness? Like, you know, and so that's, that's all. And, you know, and on top of that, you're <laughs> the drinking and the depressant and, you know, not clearly not helping yourself in that arena. Right. But the only, it's the only thing that I knew to do. And so, yeah, so they were, they were all like legit attempts. I really, like I, so I woke up that next day, Monday morning, of course, realized I'm still here and was upset again, was really upset that I was still there. And so later that night I tried again. I, I, collected whatever remaining medication I found. I don't, you know, and, uh, you know, all the booze don't know if I like, probably hard liquor. I like, I don't, I don't know. I don't, I was, you know, already fully out of it, but it wasn't like not, it, not so out of it that that choice was not intentional. That was not like a, a robot move. That was a very intentional choice. So again, didn't work. And so now I'm, you know, it's that, that feeling of full failure, twice in a row out of you know three times like I can't like I can't even like <laughs> I, I can't even do this right like I can't do anything fucking right and right I do this and so that landed me and where was your husband at that time okay so I think so I had a his house had multiple stories I had a, a room we slept in the same bedroom but I had like my room upstairs and we we didn't have a whole lot in common to be honest so like we he spent a lot of time in the basement in his man cave and I spent a lot of time upstairs in my room and so I'd been up there you know since that Saturday morning just like drinking and crying and whatever and so you know I didn't see a whole lot of him and then Sunday I mean he would come I think he would come up occasionally to just check on me but like you know you okay I'm okay. And then, so yeah, that, I, I don't think he knew. I don't, I don't, again, details are fuzzy, especially because of the amount of medication and alcohol during that period. I don't think he knew what, ha- that what I did Sunday night and Monday morning, I woke up enough to tell him I was calling in sick to work. And I, my, I think a friend of mine told him, uh, cause I, you know, in my stupor, ended up telling two of my friends or like in a group chat what had happened, which is how the next part happens. Like the next part of the story happens. But he, I think came home from work over his lunch break. Did that? You okay? And then turned around and left. Well, and you know, for him, it's like, well, it's like, it's, it's a work day. You go to work. You know what I mean? Like it's like, I'll, I'll go check on her on my break. And you know, it's like the, 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 the order of the day and the, you know, and the kind of the lack of the emotional intelligence and the, hey, maybe I should tell my boss that I need to go home. It just, it didn't even like, it's, it wasn't meant maliciously. It just, I think didn't even occur to him. Like it's right. that's just, it's just a, you know, we were just different people, like different brains. That was Monday, Monday night, more pills. And I must have, I must have sent a message to my friends again or something. I'd like, and it was like, no, that didn't work. And 
Uh, my parents show up at the door, it, it, like in the middle of the night. And this all leads to details aren't so important. This leads to me landing in a quote unquote voluntarily. It was, there's nothing voluntary about it in this in treatment uh, or inpatient treatment facility where the goal of the facility is to stabilize you, medicate you, make sure you're not going to harm yourself or others, and then send you back out into the world. And it was, I was there for three days. It was the most horrible and traumatic experience. It would have been horrible and traumatic at any point in my life, like at any point of despair or vulnerability or need, but especially, you know, with what had just happened. It it was, you know, it it was terrible. They when I got emotional about them saying that they wouldn't release me to go see my brother who was flying in for one night, who I didn't even know cared enough about me to do that, because we're just not a close family and that meant an incredible amount to me. I got I got upset about it. I mean, I wasn't rude. It wasn't, you know, uh, but I was emotional and they told the other patients to, they weren't allowed to talk to me because I had to figure out how to control my emotions. And, you know, like it was the very much like what I say doesn't matter anything because I guess, you know, probably they get lied to a lot. You know, there are people in there who have severe drug problems, people with psychosis. I mean, it's the whole gamut. And yeah, but anything that I said, they didn't believe me. Like there was one time when they told me to go, they took me out of a, or I was headed to a group class because you had to do all of the things on your list in order to be able to be released. And so I was trying to be a good student and do everything they were telling me to do, even though what I really needed to do was sleep. And they, you know, you don't sleep because they come flash the flashlight in your eyes every 10 minutes to make sure you're still alive. But they had pulled me to go speak to the psychiatrist who suddenly had an opening. And so I don't go to this group class. And I say, is that going to be a problem? They're like, no, it's fine. And then they later penalize me for not going to the group class. And I, I try to tell them, like, I was told to go to the psychiatrist. But it's like, no, wait, you know, again, like, you're not credible because you're a patient here. So, you know, it was just, it was, uh, it was, it was terrible. They, I did get this double label. Because, you know, when you fill out the, oh, by the way, yeah, the, my parents had to fill out the paperwork, the intake forms for me because my hand was shaking so much that I could not write. And I also couldn't, you know, even had my hands not been physically shaking, I could not form like letters. My brain was just, I, I even asked the psychiatrist, like, have I permanently ruined my brain? I was trying to do, you know, you can't have your cell phone in that facility. So they have like all of these like adult coloring sheets and like word puzzles and and stuff. And there was like a basic like connect the dots type thing that I could not, my brain could not process or do. So so my parents are filling out the intake form for me. So many embarrassing questions. I'm in a stupor. I'm answering all of these really embarrassing questions. So my parents are finding out all of this very private information about me, the, like things you don't want your parents to know about you horrifying but I just I'm not I'm not my right mind you know like I'm not I don't have the sense to say like they don't need to know this piece of information about me this is an invasive question that has nothing to do with my psychiatric health they don't need the answer to that you know but in in that there was I'm sure there were questions about like how much have you had to drink in the last 
week or whatever. And, you know, I'd been, I'd been drinking excessively because of what had happened with Nori. And so they, long story long, I get this double label of psychiatric patient and alcoholic. And I'm like, I'm not a fucking alcoholic. <laughs> you know, it's like, it, because it really, at that point in my life, I thought I had it. And I mean, I knew I'd had issues with alcohol in the past, but like at that point, I was like, I feel like it's actually, you know, like in, it's like a manageable amount. Like, I don't feel like this is a current problem in my life, you know? So I was pissed. It's like, you, like, I'm, you know, that's not why I'm here. Like, yes, I just drank an excessive amount of alcohol trying to kill myself and trying to cope with this grief. But it's like, this is not like my every day, you know? So I will say the one good thing about that is that because I was had that double double bracelet, which makes you a real favorite in, you know, with the clinicians and nurses is, you know. You get the special attention. You get that special negative attention. Not, no, that's, that's not fair to them, but it's more like, oh, you're like an extra special basket case. You know what I mean? But I, there was a, a group. I don't, I don't think it was a formal like AA meeting, but it was a group of people who had been in treatment in this facility who came back and were sober. And so it was like a, an AA type meeting, but not, I don't think there was like, you know, so anyway, they were volunteers, but volunteers, I see. And that was the outside of, you know, some of the fellow patients, that was the only time speaking to that group. Of, and there were other patients in there with me too, of course, but like talking to that group of people where I was like, oh my God, like these are people who understand my experience in a way I have never found in anybody else before. And so that was, yeah, that was the one like good-ish thing that came out of that experience. Yeah, because they had been through it so that therefore they could understand you. Yeah. And maybe not necessarily the the suicide piece, but these were the people who had been, you know, on drugs or, you know, heavily leaning on alcohol or whatever. So the substance, like the addiction to a substance, they knew that part of it had some of you know there I don't remember but I'm, there may have even been like and it led me to this point of desperation and you know but I almost think that that's you know and later we'll we'll find out in the story but that's the beauty of of your peers or somebody that's been through it because unless you've walked in these shoes and known that that is the only way to comfort is with alcohol or whatever the coping mechanism and in the exasperation of living, it took you there. Unless you've been through it and you've walked and you've, you know, unless you've walked in those shoes, you, it's very hard for the person, as many degrees as they have, to really understand what all of this perfect storm will create. So I, I think, you know, it, it was them labeling you was not necessarily correct, but it was labeling you that it got you some sort of comfort. Mm -hmm. Yeah, it's labeling me that landed me in actually the right group of people, right? And what you said is 
is, I mean, has been, I can't speak for anyone else, but has been key to my recovery is being with a group of people who have been there and understand it. And, you know, really like feel they like it feels like finding my I, people say it all the time but like finding my tribe of people mm-hmm. our right? soul tribe mm-hmm. and that's something that yeah I mean that not everybody under you know that not everybody can understand if they have have not been through it I and mean, they can empathize for sure right or have a lot of knowledge about it but yeah it's it's finding people who know the experience and have felt the same kind of shame, you know, and are willing to talk about their shame. That's for me, at least where the healing has been. Yeah. So I was there for three days. I ended up, and this felt gross to me because I am not, you know, by nature, a dishonest, I mean, I don't know that anything's by nature a dishonest person, but it's something that I, I, you know, I, I really do try to always be honest, but I ended up basically playing the system because I quickly realized the things that I needed to say and write on my morning and evening check, like check-in docs, the things that they I needed to say so that they would release me, even though I was technically voluntarily there. I've I did that, and I came out of the hospital or whatever it's called after three days, and I was really angry. Something there was a a checklist in there about anger, and I like this. So you know, I guess two things that you know other well two there were two checklists. One was about like stressful life events, and like if you've gone through, I'm just I don't remember the exact thing, but like let's say you if you've gone through five of these in the past year, then you've been under an extreme amount of stress or something like that. And I circled most of them. Um, I mean, honestly, like honestly circled most of them. And I was like, wow, I guess things have been, you know, more stressful than I thought they were or like that I was giving myself credit for. And the other checklist was about anger. And up to that point, I didn't think I was an angry person. I thought I was actually like a pretty because, you know, people pleasing, like I'm always trying to just be like likable and lovable and you know kind and, you know, and take up as little space as possible and and not to say that I was never angry, but like go with the flow, you know, just all of that. And I don't even remember what that checklist said, but there was something in it that made me realize not only am I angry, I am fucking pissed. Like I am furious. And I, that was so weird to me to like have been completely not in touch with the fact that I was really angry. But then you add this horrible experience that I was going through in that moment at that facility And I come out and I am just, yeah, just like on fire, just not necessarily like to the people around me, but I am just livid. And so then suddenly it's like, okay, now I'm dealing with grief, this anger that I got in touch with, good for me, this just just and over this like to me what was a like an inhumane experience so it's like you take somebody at their absolute lowest worst and then you like just kick them you know it's like that the kick you when you're down thing but like in the worst possible way and so now I'm like I don't even I you know I 
I, I don't even know where I fit into this world at all. Because like, if this is what this world is, like this experience with people, like this is how people are treated when they need help. Like, what am I, like, why, if I was wondering what I was doing here before, now I really don't fucking know. Right. You know? But, you know, at this point, it's like families and, you know, parents are there and, and it's, it's just like, and then it's like, I have to go back to work. Like, again, it's like, I have to, like, I have to earn money. I can't just like take some time off or, so it's like, I think that, I think I was, so if, if I went into the hospital, let's say like on a Tuesday, Wednesday or whatever was out by Saturday, I was back to work on Monday. You know, it's like, no time off. I mean, like, you, I couldn't. And I can't, like, I can't call my employer and be like, oh, hi. Like, I was in the loony bin this past week because I tried to kill myself twice. Can I have a couple of days off? You know, so it's like, you know, I, it's like I had to, I just had, you know, you just have to keep going. But there's no time to grieve. There's no time to, co to come to terms with that experience that like what I would say is like a trauma, like the trauma of the hospital experience, in addition to the trauma of the loss of my dogs, there was nothing. It's like, just keep going. So I just kept going. And I was like, oh, you thought I had an alcohol problem? Hold on to your hat. And, and then it got bad, right? I was like, fuck all of you. And so, and cause you know, now I'm ragey Liz. <laughs> And, you know, it's my coping mechanism. So I just like, just gone. Just like, I, I just don't care. You know, I mean, I, I, I cared enough in the sense of like, I still, ha I still have to pay my bills. I still have to go to work. I still have to like, so I was still doing, you know, that like high functioning type thing. So I was high, I was high functioning. I was still doing all the things that I had to do, like a good, you know, check list marker person you know like like a good citizen i was doing all the things i had to do but i was you mean you hadn't lost everything like we say you know it, that's the misconception that you know the person that has any type of form of addiction or can even utter the word you know alcohol use disorder or anything like that in any way, shape, or form, and I speak for myself, when I came to IAS, it was, I did not consider myself an alcoholic mm -hmm. because I had lost everything. Mm -hmm. And I was high-functioning. And to see everyone around me, like you and many others, you know, that PhDs, masters, oh, <laughs> pay rent, you know, have a nice family. It, everything looks good. It didn't fit and resonate with me. And I uh, can understand why you're saying like I was high functioning because someone else that's listening to this might say, well, I'm high functioning. I don't have a problem. Yeah, there's not in, in my story, although there are many really dark, ugly, embarrassing, horrible moments there's not necessarily that like rock bottom mm -hmm. that some some people have in their stories so yeah i mean everybody's rock bottom is different is different right yeah for sure but there's not an easy what is it called like demarcator for like 
this is when, you know, your relationship with alcohol had to turn around. There wasn't that one clear event or moment per se. Right. Right. Yeah. So, so Liz is out of the, the facility and now you're pissed off at the world. I'm pissed. I'm drinking a lot. <laughs> yeah. Liz. I'm angry. I'm drinking a lot. And, but, you know, going back to life, I'm in this relationship. We, it, you know, things aren't great, you know, the, but they weren't, again, it wasn't bad enough to totally uproot my life and start over, you know? And I mean, basically like, it's like, okay, I'm in this relationship. I'm, I, I go sit in my room. I drink. He doesn't say a whole lot about it. You know, he does sometimes, but not often. He basically, he tolerates it. He doesn't give me a real hard time about it. And, you know, things are okay. Like, they're not terrible. They're okay. You know, things are kind of getting worse. Or, you know, like, it's it's a long, slow downhill, right? But, like, whatever. So we're together. This is now start... So if that was December 2016 was when I was in the hospital, you know, then we get into 2017, uh, we get married in April of 2017. And then by August, I am pregnant. I, I'm, I get pregnant. I'm really happy about it. I don't get the response that I'd hoped for from my husband, even though, you know, again, it wasn't like a surprise, it, you know, so... That was devastating to me to not have this like happy response, right? And it's like, you know, you have these like big life moment things that you, at least that I thought about, you know, as a younger woman where it's like when you get engaged, when you find out you're pregnant and I like I never had a proper proposal because of just the the way these marriages kind of came about. And, you know, when I tell my husband I'm pregnant it's it more just not disappointment but more like how much is this going to cost us and what does this mean for my life you know well and then you know all of the kind of emotional things that start to happen as you're I mean as a woman your hormones I mean like I was still working full-time commuting into the city an hour and a half each way so like it's it's all taking a you know obviously a, a physical toll on me but then the uh, emotional thing of like oh my God, we're having a baby. I'm going to be a mom. Like, am I going to be a terrible mom? Is this alcohol thing a problem? You know, like it just like all of, you know, and you know, everybody has things that they're from childhood where they say, okay, I think my parents did this well. I I kind of wish they'd done this differently. So it's like, am I going to make this like, I hate to call it mistakes. Everybody's doing their best, but like, am I going to make the same mistakes? You know, blah, 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 blah. Like all of that and feeling like fully alone I, of course, was doing all this research to try, you know, you would see things that would say like, you know, uh, you can have up to two glasses of wine a day as a pregnant woman and your children will be fine. And then you see the, no, you can absolutely not have a single drop of alcohol while you're pregnant. You're going to ruin your children. So you're seeing the whole gamut, you know, online. So I, of course, like I go to my OBGYN in the first appointment for the pregnancy and I ask is like what, what her, like what the thought is or like what the what her knowledge of the research is or whatever and she says that I can have a glass of wine one glass of wine per week and so I was like okay and I was relieved 
of course, because like, what do you do without your crunch? Yeah, I had one glass of wine per week, like, and, and, but it was, you know, waiting. It's that like, is it, I, I don't know what day it was, but like, is it Tuesday yet? You know, or whatever. I, I don't know. But it's like, it was that like, there was that conscious like awareness of what day it was and when I could have my next glass of wine. Right. And then one night I was depressed. I was tired. I was overwhelmed. I felt alone in my everything, blah, 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 like all the crap. And I opened a second can of wine because I was doing the cans because, you know, don't want to let a bottle go bad. (laughs) And, you know, maybe even there might have even been a psychological, like, I don't want to have an open bottle because I will continue to drink the bottle. You know what I mean? Like, so I, I opened a second can of wine and I had some of it. I don't remember how much. And then I, I panicked because I was like, what are you doing? Like, you cannot do this. And I was horrified at myself. I went and got the baby monitor, the heart monitor, because I was convinced I'd killed my son. You know, I can't find his heartbeat. Those things are, (laughs) it took me a while for some to find it at all. Like They're not easy to use, but at that point, like I knew it well enough to where I thought, you know, I should be able to find it quickly and I couldn't find it. And I like full on panic. And then I do find it and it is now, you know, of course, uh, fetal heartbeats are faster than normal anyway. But to me, it sounded like even more accelerated than the norm. And, you know, thinking back on it now, I'm like, it was probably because I was so stressed and panicky. But at the time, and I, I mean, I don't know that for sure. It could have been the alcohol. And at the time, I thought it was definitely the alcohol and that I had poisoned my baby. And I was disgusted at myself and, and terrified and all like all of it, right? Just horrified, you know? And after that, what was, it's like a flip switched in my mind. So I went from like counting down the days to my glass of wine to having no interest in alcohol at all for the remainder of the pregnancy. So that was interesting for me to kind of think back on later, being like, is it really that easy? Like, how is it that I can like that it's it, it's really from one moment to the next, I can go from like obsessively thinking about alcohol to just being like, no. But it for me, it had to do with it wasn't about me. Like it, it was about me, that selfish, horribly selfish decision to open that second can of wine. But once I like snapped into what I was doing and then I realized like this is about my kid and then I was like, I can't, then it's like, it, this is going to hurt my child and I cannot do this anymore. I don't want to do this anymore. Because it's not about me and my health, and it's it's about him, right? Which I mean, as a as a mother carrying a baby is is it's good to have that then be about him. And you know, I have so much shame and guilt that it took me doing something that potentially put him at risk to snap me into that. You know, not only are you dealing with the normal like stressors of life and you know for me the grief and all the crap that had happened in that past year 
But now you're dealing with this added thing of the overwhelm of pregnancy and the, the emotions and the physical changes and all of that. And, and your, your tool, your one coping tool has been essentially taken away from you, right? So now you're sitting there like, well, now what do I do? And I was reading all of these, you know, in my <laughs> Google researching about alcohol, drinking alcohol as a pregnant person, I was finding all of these, like, form is probably not the right word. That sounds like very old fashioned. But, you know, all of these comments from people being like, I cannot believe a mother, like, would even consider taking, you know, like, uh, all of these people all who are, you know, like, if, if, there, if there was somebody asking about, like, is one glass of wine acceptable? Them essentially being like, how dare you even pose that question? Like, what kind of horrible person are you to be asking that kind of question? Like, how exactly. selfish, how disgusting, you know? But I was one of those women, maybe not like outwardly on the internet, but, you know, to my doctor, it, I was searching for it. It's like, so there's that shame too of like, I'm one of the women who's trying to figure out if I can have a glass of wine. Like everybody, everybody else is like, how dare you yeah you're like yeah you're horrible like how do yeah how dare you well and kind of the irony of it is that like okay when you're a pregnant woman absolutely zero alcohol you like creature of satan for thinking of it right when you're a mom then there's mommy wine culture right so it's this like huge flip from like how dare you to you should be and it's like, you know, it's like this whiplash of, of these expectations of mothers and women. And, and, you know, it's just so, it's sick, you know? Yeah. It's convoluted and it's sending mixed signals, you know, of, because it's so glamorized. You, like you, what you just said, you, how dare you drink while you're pregnant? But you need the juice to raise the child. Mm -hmm. Definitely. Yeah. So take us from there. What happened? Okay. So then my son was born in the spring of 2018. And, you know, I had, as I said, I had no desire after that one scary moment to drink. So I didn't. I, I feel, thank God, you know, and uh, yeah. But as soon as he was born, I didn't, I mean, I wasn't like drinking in the hospital, but I, I had the desire. Like I, it was kind of like, okay, I have no desire to drink anymore while I'm pregnant, but I can't wait for that. Like first margarita, you know what I mean? Like, and, but I, you know, was nursing. And so of course the thought is, is like, as a nursing mother, you know, there, you talk, you hear about like all this, like, there's all that like pump and dump culture you know, all the ways that like, there are so many different ways that like women talk about like how you can nurse and still consume massive amounts of alcohol. Right. So it, it like, it was never a question to me of maybe, maybe should I maybe just not drink because it's like, okay, I'm, I'm going to drink and I'm going to nurse, but I'm going to do it. I'm going to, I'm going to have a system so that I can do it safely. Right. Responsibly. Response. Drink responsibly. Right. Which, by the way, I, you know, as a nursing mother, 
you are, I mean, most new parents, but especially I think uh, nursing mothers, you're not sleeping or you're getting like bits and like hardly any sleep. So you're not like you're physically, it's like your body's going through work or whatever. That's, that's not the right analogy, but you know, it's like you're, you're, your body is wrecked after a delivery and for many weeks, right? So your your body is trying to heal. You're not getting any sleep. You're if you know a, you're a new parent of some kind. And for me, it was my firstborn. Mm-hmm. So that's like a like everything's new. And so it's like probably like encouraging new mothers to drink is not a good idea. Like actually, we shouldn't be drinking because we need to be healing and sleeping and. You know, or it's like the promotion of that as a way to cope with new, like with motherhood is, it's, it's horrible, right? But like, but I, yeah, so that's all to say that I, it never occurred to me to not start drinking as soon as my baby was safely delivered into the world. So I had a conversation with his pediatrician because I had heard that if you're having issues with lactation, that drinking dark beer could help it. And so I asked her that, like, they hand you a list at the pediatrician's office of ways, like things you can eat or whatever. And I I said, oh, like, this isn't on the list. (laughs) Why, you know, but I was like, but is it true that this, you know, that dark beer helps? And she was like, yeah, of course, she did not mean like a six pack of dark beer. Right. But like, and so it's the way I got back into drinking is that I, I mean, I'm sure I had like the, the, the margarita the night or two after we were out of the hospital just one. And then, you know, I, cause my tolerance had like, I, you know, I hadn't been drinking for so long. So it's like, I, like I was low tolerance again. And, but then it's like, you know, I, okay, I'm going to have one dark beer to help with lactation. And then of course, like one dark beer turns into two, three, four, five, six. And then like, it's a whole problem again, because now it's like the, all of the things that happened before the pregnancy, you know, with the, the dogs in the hospital and the, the, the bad, sorry bad's not really a great word but like the 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 marriage that I wasn't really happy in and then you add the pregnancy and all of these emotions and and physical things and overwhelm it's like it now that's it's all there Mm -hmm. and so you're now dealing with because you haven't dealt with any of that other stuff so now there's that plus a new baby and no sleep and going back to work and feel all the guilt, the mom guilt, and the like feeling fully alone. Like it takes a village. There is no village, like all of that. And so it got bad again quickly. Right. And so I, I kind of figured out this system of when, how long I could breastfeed and then when I needed to switch to formula. And there's also that, like, I never intended to use formula, but I had a baby who needed to eat more than I could produce. So then there's all of these ideals that you, you everybody goes into, like, this is what I'm going to do as a mother. And then, like, what is it, like, make a plan, God laughs or whatever. Yeah. Like, but then you're dealing with all of these, like, well, this is what I was going to do and that doesn't work. And then there's, like, this devastation over that, too, you know? Right. So yeah, so I was having to supplement with formula. So I had the system worked out as to I breastfeed until this point in the day, then I formula, get formula. And of course, like that formula hour was shifting earlier and earlier and earlier because of my drinking, right? So I stole from my child 
in myself that experience of nursing because of my drinking. And so I didn't nurse nearly as long as I wanted to. That is in large part because if you're dehydrated all the time and not breastfeeding enough because you can't breastfeed your child alcohol-filled milk, then, you know, you're not like, you're not producing. And at some point you just kind of stop producing, right? So there's a lot of deep shame and regret that that precious time I squandered. So, yeah, it's a monster you're feeling, you know, but like a a monster that I allowed into my house too. Totally. And, and you're very valid with all your feelings that you feel about it and processing it. And this is why we're doing this. This is why we're doing this. I was never diagnosed, but, you know, it, because of my long history with depression, <laughs> it was clear to me that I was very much struggling with postpartum depression. And in fact, my, I think it was my OBGYN who warned me. She said, you're probably, given your history, this is probably going to be a problem for you. And I was like, no, (laughs) like, I'm like, I'm so excited to be a mom. This is going to be great. And it was great, except it was also, there was so much of it that was awful, not because of my beautiful baby boy, because of the lack of support that I felt and, you know, all of the things, the addiction, the mom guilt, the, all the things I've already said. So there was one night that I was drunk and I drunk, hysterical, angry at my ex-husband. I don't, I don't remember what it was about, but I think probably feeling fully unseen, unheard, unsupported, all of the things. And I went, I was in the garage, like I got in the car, turned the car on. I clearly had no business driving, right? But my Point, the whole reason for me getting in the car, this was late at night, was because I was fully intending to go drive myself into a wall because I thought my son would be better without me. And I don't know how my ex stopped me from leaving. I don't remember. I mean, I don't, the details are unclear, but he did. So that didn't happen. But it was, it was bad. And that, of course, that wasn't an isolated moment of feeling that way. And if I'm honest, it's that's still something that I think today from time to time. So, you know, uh, spring of 2018 is when my son is born. In the fall of 2018, we moved from Georgia to North Carolina, where I currently live. And, you know, in theory, that's a beautiful, great, wonderful thing because we're moving to a place that has always felt like home to me in a way no other place has, including where I was born and raised. And, but, and I mean, and so there was that, there was joy, but there's also this marriage that is falling apart. And there's, you know, I, some stuff, some things happening with job and by the fall of 2019, I was, you know, we, uh, my husband and I had tried couples therapy and that was getting me nowhere. And I remember my, the marriage counselor said to me at one point, she was like, you know, you need 
a marriage needs a net to fall back on. So like if you have a bad fight or a disagreement or something, then you either need the, well, we we have fun together. Like he, this is my friend. This is my person. This is the one I go to when things are hard. So you have that emotional piece or that like fun piece. Like we have a lot in common. We really enjoy hanging out with each other. Or you have that physical piece. Like we have amazing makeup sex or we have any kind of makeup sex. You know, like there's something. And she's like, but if none of that is there, there's no net. So you have a disagreement and you just, there's nothing to catch you. And so that's what, that's what my marriage was. There was no net. And so, yeah, by the fall of 2019, I was beginning to think about leaving and I could not do it financially. I just, I didn't have the money to put down a deposit for an apartment or what, you know, I just, I didn't, I couldn't do it. Mm-hmm. So come March of 2020, everybody knows this part of the story, <laughs> the pandemic hits, Right. So I had been commuting into the nearest city, which was like 45 minutes away. Son was going to daycare and suddenly I'm at home with him, still working full time and he's two and, you know, no daycare. So for three months, I'm trying to work full time at home with my two-year-old, which it's that perfect storm age of like, if he's a baby, you can put him in like a or like a young toddler, put him in a pack and play or a cradle, whatever. He like sleeps a lot, he plays by himself, he's fine. If he's older, he's independent enough to like keep himself entertained somewhat. And it's this like the two-year-old thing of like, I am out and about exploring the world, but I'm not really like steady at anything. So I'm like constantly like putting myself into extreme danger. <laughs> so you know, and my husband, when, once we moved to North Carolina, he began traveling all week, every week for work. So even before we split, my week looked like I'll, you know, Monday through Friday, I'm alone with our son and I'm working full time. And then on the weekends, he's there. Saturday and Sunday, he's there. And I thought, well, when he's home, especially once the pandemic hit and it's the, wow, my wife must be really exhausted given that she's trying to manage a two-year-old and, you know, all the things. And so I'm going to give her a break. And like, there was none of that, right? It was more like, okay, he's home and he's never, he, to be fair to him, he's gone all week. So like, he wants to be in his home, like watching his TV. And, and that's not to say that he was like fully, you know, like it was all me and no him, but that kind of that support and that understanding that I needed from him to see like, wow, she's like, this is hard. What she's doing right now is really hard. Plus like we're in the middle of a pandemic. Nobody knows what's going on. I have, as we all do, we all have like somebody we're concerned about and, you know, in terms of aging or poor health or whatever, and, you know, young child and it, you know, it's just, it's, it's a crisis. Right. And so I didn't, I didn't have the support that I'd hoped for from him or that I needed or he, you know, during that. And so by the late spring, early summer of 2020, I knew I had to leave and things were also escalating between us. Our arguments were getting worse and worse. There were, you know, things that I didn't, I knew that it, 
for you know, there's there are some people who are like stay together for the kids. For me, I was like, I cannot continue to stay in this relationship with my son in this house with us because even if he's in the other room, he can hear everything because it's not a you know it's not a large house and and he's not always in the other room to you know and it's like I cannot I can't do this anymore and also I don't want to model this as a relationship for him. I don't want him to think that this is what love is. I mean, not that there wasn't love, but like I was becoming a person that I didn't even recognize because I was so angry. And out of that anger, I was doing things that I'm horrified by. You know, I like, <laughs> I told you this story yesterday, but <laughs> It's like, it's kind of funny in retrospect, but it's like horrible, you know, in the moment, which is that, you know, my ex, because he traveled, he had a suitcase that he left by the front door. And there was one night, I don't, again, no idea what the fight was about, but I, he had just gotten home. I was shocked. Shockingly, I was drinking. So I was drunk and, but, you know, coherent, drunk and coherent, whatever that means. (laughs) (laughs) <laughs> but I remember it. I wasn't blocked out yet. I might have later. I don't remember. <laughs> but I was so angry at him. And again, feeling like I, he doesn't hear me. He doesn't hear me. So I told him, I was like, I, I was screaming at him to get the fuck out. Mm-hmm. And he, he wouldn't leave because he pays the mortgage on this house. And I mean, yeah, I get it. Like, again, he's gone all week, right? Like, he just got home. He wants to be home in his own bed, see his kid, you know, see his drunk ass wife. But so, like, I take his suitcase and the, the house is on pilings. So stilts. And I, so the front porch, of course, is like up in the air, right? Like, you have to walk upstairs to get to the front door. And I take his suitcase and I throw it over the porch, the entire, like, full suitcase. I don't know how I picked it up, to be honest. Something was, so it's like, the rage, the rage gave me strength. Adrenaline. <laughs> right over the railing. I mean, like, clothes. It's like the worst kind of, like, it's almost comedic, you know, like, except it's not, but like, clothes flying through the air. <laughs> His jar of Nutella, Nutella shattered on the driveway. So I got to do the drunken shame, the walk of shame to the end of the driveway to pick up the shards of Nutella glass the next day. <laughs> I mean, my my neighbor across the street, like I saw the lights come on, silhouettes in the window, like there. I mean, we live on a, like, a, it's quiet here. <laughs> I, said they, I mean, I, they weren't trying, I'm, I don't think it was like a nosy, like it was like, oh my God, like, because a- screaming and obscenities and or curse words and you know some drunk asshole throwing a <laughs> but it's like you never think you're going to be that person right oh, well, no and then you then when, one day you wake up and you are that person and you graduate <laughs> <laughs> i didn't enroll in this program <laughs> how did i get a degree <laughs> It's you know what it's I'm telling you, if we just don't realize who we're becoming as the alcohol is just engulfing us. I mean that's that's absolutely right. But I also want to take personal responsibility for it too. Like I I don't want to. 
like blame. And I'm not saying that you're saying this, but like I it's important to me to say that like I'm not like it was my choice to drink. It was my choice to behave the way I did. It was I mean, there was a you know, it feels in that moment like I, it's not a choice. It's a reaction. But like I just I don't. Yeah, I, I don't know. It's like I, I want to. You want to take responsibility and not minimize the situation for what it was? Yeah, I guess it's like, I guess I don't want to, I don't want to say, oh, well, like Liz is this super kind, sweet, gentle person, but the alcohol made Liz throw her husband's suitcase over the front porch. It's like, I mean, the alcohol helped. <laughs> that was still me who picked up that suitcase. You know what I mean? So I guess it's like, I just don't want to like, fully, you know, put all of the responsibility over on alcohol because I played my role in that. And just like, I don't want the demise of my marriages to sound like, you know, it was this person's fault. Like, no, I played a huge role of in that. Of course. Right. So it's just, yeah. yeah, it's like, it's like, I, it's important to me to take accountability for what I did and the choices I made and the behaviors that I engaged in that led to these moments. But yeah, I became this person I didn't recognize. I was like a rage machine. It was not fair to my son. And I guess like, it wasn't fair to myself. It wasn't fair to my ex-husband to continue living that way you know like the way I was treating him in my anger is nobody deserves that kind of treatment period you know and and so it's uh, that's you know I was just like I I've, I've tried everything that I know to try to fix this and to communicate and to health like in a healthy manner express my frustration but like nothing is landing working whatever so it's kind of in a similar way where with Ginger and Nori, I felt like I'd, I, I tried everything I could and I didn't, there was nothing left for me to try. That's kind of where I got with the marriage. And so I decided I can't keep us, any of us in this situation anymore. And so luckily by then, this was summer of 2020, I had managed to figure out a way to make it financially feasible for me to leave. And so I did. And it took me a few months to to find a place to go. And then a hurricane came and hit, dropped a tree on my new house. As like the week before I was supposed to be closing. It's, you know, it's like if it's not one thing, it's the next thing. So there's a lot of so marriage is ending. I'm trying to figure out my living situation. Hurricane comes. I mean, it's just like one shit show after the next. And so, you know, but by, let's say, like September of 2020, I've, I've left. I've moved out. I've, I'm in my own space now. And so, you know, during, so from September 2020 to September 2021, I'm, you know, I, the, this thing, like, I, we talked about this yesterday, how some people get sober in a relationship. And once they're sober, they're looking, you know, at their world with new-ish eyes. 
And maybe they start to see the ways that their relationship contributed to their drinking or for me. And so, and then they maybe start making choices about their relationship. For me, I could not get sober while I was still in that marriage because I didn't, I didn't have any coping skills or mechanisms. And the only thing I could do to cope was to drink. And so it took me leaving the marriage to be able to have the capacity to get sober. And in that first year, so, you know, again, September, 2020 to September, 2021, I'm, you know, trying to figure out life. You know, I'm still like a, I guess, a single mom during the week. And then on the weekends now, my son is not always, but most, with his dad and there's the adjustment of the first few nights that my son wasn't with me I'd until he was three and a half years old I saw him every single day of his life so like even the nights that he was spending with his dad I would make it a point to go and see him and I'm lucky that we our co-parenting situation is allows that right like I feel so incredibly lucky for that we don't have like a super rigid custody thing and you know thank god but so, until, but those first few nights, even if I was seeing him during the day, the first few nights where my son was not with me mm-hmm. were just devastating. I just like, I could not like, and of course you're like, how did, how did this happen? Like, I, again, you have this idea of what, what your family is going to be, what your life, like when you have a child, what your life is going to look like, you know, the, you know, not necessarily the white picket fence, but like you think like, I'm going to be with my child's father and how this is our family and so all of that and of course you know how do you deal with your child not being with you for the first time in his life you drink right it's your best friend that's always there right and I'm like you know pretty again I have uh, there's no village where I live I don't have a social network per se you know some friends that I'm I'm in touch with occasionally but not like tons so I'm just here Mm -hmm. in this house drinking because that's what I do and then there's also the the okay well this is also the first time that my I not that I don't have any responsibility for my child because he's still here and obviously I need you know but he's like there's in, in a way that's different from like there are two adults in the house and you know even if dad is technically supposed to be watching the kid like mom's doing a whole lot of work anyway well now it's like now we're in two separate houses so now dad has to watch the kid entirely you know so there's that like that freedom of like oh well now like I mean I can drink even more you know but it like through that year I would say this is probably you know it well it's when I first discovered the term sober curious I, I didn't even know that was a term but like this this I knew for a long time that alcohol was an issue. I like basically like after Nori's death and, you know, and the uh, everything that happened then and probably even before, like blacking out, I knew was not okay. I, you know, and I, so it, it was something that I was very, very aware of for a very long time. But I think I didn't start, I just could not see a way to not do it. I just, I didn't know. Like, I just, how do you, how do you quit? How do you give up your only friend? Right. And so, but I have, I, 
this there's this thing where my son's first word was mama. My son's first phrase was mama's wine. And so when you start to realize those things about how your child is seeing your drinking, I'm doing, there are some things that I did in front of him that I'm not proud of. There's the beginning to think like, okay, I give my son a bath at the end of the evening. Well, what if I drink so much and and not like blackout drunk per se, but what if I drink so much and I'm so exhausted that I just like fall asleep and my son's in the bathtub? Or, you know, what if something happens and he hurts himself and I've already been drinking and yes, I can call an ambulance, but like if I'm wasted, are they going to call Child Protective Services? You know, so it's like you, as a single mom, you start thinking of all these things. Responsible, obviously, for his physical health, but also his emotional health, you know? And, like, if he's, if he know if he can walk over, pick up my little, like, coffee mug of wine, because I'm classy like that, <laughs> and say, Mama's wine, it's like, he's, like, he knows, like, he's aware. Like, he might not fully understand what that means, but then, like, if mama then falls asleep on the couch, you know, and, and he's still awake, or, you know, so it's just, it's all of that. Right. So I'm, I'm like putting together, like, this is something that I need to figure out. So I, yeah, I, I find those from sober curious and start, you know, following some things like that. I had a conversation and like, you know, Googling, <laughs> I'm an alcoholic and like taking quizzes online. <laughs> uh, we all do that because we want to, we want something to fit in a box. Yeah. Because it's like, is this like, is this problem drinking or is this like mommy wine culture drinking, you know? And so I spoke with a sober woman here in the community. I did not, you know, met her not in as like sobriety, but just found out she was sober and she has many years of sobriety and said to her, hey, okay, here's like the the whole like the long spiel about like, here's how much I drink and but I only drink in the evenings most of the time. Sometimes, you know, blah, 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 blah. How long had, yeah. how long had she, I'm sorry to interrupt. How long had she been sober? I don't know exactly. I think it was like six years. I mean, it was like significant, at least to me, significant sobriety. You know? <laughs> yeah. So especially, yeah. So she had gotten. So you, it, from what I I remember you telling me, so you went to this. There was some sort of an activity that has nothing to do with drinking. Yeah. And she announces that she is that she doesn't drink or. No, I think like, so I met her through, as you said, uh, something absolutely nothing to do with drinking, but I think I started following her on social media and she has a blog or, you know, and there's something she's, I mean, she's openly sober. So there was something that I saw. And so then like read, like figured out what her story was and all of that. And, and she, I mean, she was really her vulnerability and the way she like aired her dirty laundry was so admirable to me because I'm like this woman is owning her story and by owning her story she is helping so many people you know and she doesn't even like I'm sure she knows some of them the people who actively like reach out to her but there are so many people she's touching who she'll never even know 
like me, because I was too scared to say anything to her, you know, figuring she would sniff out that I have <laughs> issues, <laughs> but like, you know, like reading, but reading her things and being like, wow, you know? And so when I finally worked up the courage to be like, hi, do you think I have a problem? I don't, you know, I think it's pretty normal. So she's like, hey, Liz, uh, small tip, people who have a normal relationship with alcohol don't ask if they have an alcohol problem because it never even occurs to them that they might have a problem whereas I was expecting her to be like oh Liz you're so self-aware and if you're aware of it and you're kind of keeping an eye on it and tracking it and you know asking yourself every morning if it's okay to have a drink today or not then you're doing okay because you know you're not one of those who's like oh I don't have a problem and you know and so it wasn't the answer I was expecting (laughs) <laughs> or wanted to hear, but it was the answer I needed. Yeah. So at some point, and this was actually earlier when I, I think when I was still even with my husband, I read Annie Grace's This Naked Mind and, you know, obviously didn't get sober right away after that. But there was, it planted the seed in my mind about like what alcohol really, it was the first, I, no, it might've been the first quitlet I read, but it was the first thing that I'd ever seen written about alcohol alcohol that made sense to me and you know this this is my belief about my addiction and everybody I just want to say like I know people feel differently about this and whatever works for anybody like I'm not here to say what's right and wrong this is just what what feels true to me Mm -hmm. is that alcohol is a poison it is an addictive substance and that you know if you drink it any of us have the potential to become addicted to an addictive substance. And if you couple that with issues like depression and anxiety, that it, you know, there are some of us that are maybe more inclined to have, you know, issues with alcohol if we're using it to self-medicate, which I was. So like, I don't think it's a disease. I just think that it's an addictive substance that I got addicted to because I was using it to to self-medicate but that's my thought I know other people feel differently and that's you know totally yeah but that was the first oh sorry go ahead yeah what we're trying to I guess it was like what we talked about is that there's no one way to to sobriety right and I guess it doesn't matter really like whether whether you call yourself an alcoholic, whether you say I have like an I have issues with alcohol, I have an unhealthy relationship with that, whatever you call it, like hopefully we all end up in the same place, right? Which is that we want to be sober. So it doesn't really and same thing with the different programs. There are some programs that work really well for some people and really don't work for other people, right? So we all have to figure out that like that either combination or that particular path that works for us. But again, like we're all landing in that same spot, hopefully. Like that's the goal, right? Right, right. So it, yeah, I mean, to me, it's like, I, I you know, if, if somebody wants to call themselves an alcoholic and I don't want to call myself an alcoholic, I'd rather say I have a problem with alcohol than whatever. Like who cares? It's all semantics, right? right. I hope that's not offensive to anybody because I also don't want to like. No, this is your story. This is how you're telling it for you. You get what I'm saying? So like this is this is what sounds true to you. This is your truth. Yeah. And whatever works out for me, somebody else, this is your story. Yeah. 
Well, it's it's kind of similar to with the Catholicism thing, like because <laughs> Catholicism didn't make sense to me. So I ended up finding my spirituality after this, like the time in the hospital when I was desperately trying to find something that made sense to me in this world. I found it, you know, this more nature-based spirituality and a community around that, that right. I was like-minded people, right? Like I, I understand this in a way that I don't understand Catholicism. It's, you know, kind of like with this, it's like this particular way of thinking about, you know, my issues with alcohol might not make sense to me, but this other way as described, you know, by this naked mind in part does make sense to me. And that was the, I needed that vocabulary or that there's descriptions and the the understanding that alcohol is actually a poison and not like this elegant, sophisticated drink, you know, like I, I needed, like I needed all of that to click into place for it to make sense. Same thing where like, it, where the, I felt like the, the, I wouldn't say it was like a, a switch flip in the same way, like in the pregnancy after the, that issue, but it was more of this like, you know, like the dimmer dial, right? Like it's like somebody's finally turning the light on. <laughs> yeah. 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 And it's, you're funneling it on, you know, that subject, the alcohol. You're like, well, maybe, maybe I, I really, I'll, you know, it, you start noticing that it's the alcohol infused where all of these problems are starting to take its toll. Yeah. So then the questions start to begin. So that's why, I mean, going back to the quiz, we have to quiz ourselves to see, is it a problem? Do I fit in this box? Yeah. And I mean, I think if I was being like honest with myself, I knew I knew it was a problem. In our society, I think it's so accepted and so part of our everyday and so prevalent and, you know, our marketing and all of that, that it, it almost makes you question yourself because you're like, I feel like I have a problem. But then like, look at all these other people drinking, you know? So, yeah. And it's very common that we're like, y- you, you're, so your barometer is based on other people, your the culture. Um, so that's why the, these quiz, the the quizzes are available. You know that we try to take. So, how did you come to sober curious? And I I how how did how did you get there? Yeah. So I had tried. I'd found this other I don't know recover, like sobriety group on I think Facebook at some point and had this was back when I was still with my ex and tried they had a zoom that I joined and it just for whatever reason did not the, the I, I didn't vibe with it it didn't feel like my place so I kind of pretty quickly abandoned the idea of that um, and so I I guess like you know this the sober curiosity thing is like planted in my brain right I decided in the spring of 2021 that I was going to run a marathon, which has always been like a, uh, what, is like, what, like, what do they call it? Bucket list thing Next. for my 40th birthday, which was in October of 2021. And so I started training for it and I figured probably not a great idea to be drinking as much as I am when training for a marathon. Like, how am I going to run 26.2 miles if I'm drunk or dehydrated? You know what I mean? Like all of the things. So I got two weeks of sobriety in the spring of 2021, which was basically just, well, I mean, white knuckling, but with the, the thought of like, I need to do this for my training program. And 
then, you know, of course, that thing like, oh, two weeks, I, I, I did a great job. Like, I'm going to have some wine. I'm sure like I can, you know, the, 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 the third door, like what you and uh, Ashes here talked about on her podcast of like, I can moderate like this is I've got this under control. Right. Of course, I didn't have it under control. Um, <laughs> you know, and, and what happened was I like I ended up having to that was October 20th, 21. I'd signed up for the marathon. I was like registered everything. And, and I'd done it. I'd signed up with a group of friends. So it wasn't even just like me and my own shame. It was like, okay, I was supposed to, was with like, there were four of us, two were going to do a 5k and two of us were going to run the marathon together. And so I ended up having to call my friend at some point. I think I finally gave up the dream in August and I told her I couldn't do it. Like I wasn't, going to be able to. I ran, I I made, I did a half marathon in June as part of the training. But after I did that half marathon, I just, I couldn't keep up with the training because of the the alcohol. Right. And so I had to finally just call it and I ended up doing the 5k instead, but I felt horrible because my friend and I had committed to doing this marathon together and I couldn't do it. And it was my, like, it was my idea. It was my birthday. You know, it was my dream. And she like just kindly agreed to try to do it with me. It was her first marathon too. It's not like she was one of these like super crazy ultra runners or something. Not that they're crazy. They're amazing. Like, you know what I mean? Like, it's not that she had had this, like, she's like, oh, it's just another marathon. It was like a huge deal for her. And she was just a good friend. And I, I didn't show up for her or for me because of alcohol. And, you know, so there's that, there's my son, there's all of this, this uh, super curious stuff. And so I'm scrolling Instagram. I'm sure I was drunk one night in September. And I come across a post from a celebrity who I didn't even know I was following, probably followed her drunk. And she had screenshotted her sobriety date day count from IAS and posted it. Oh, wow. Yeah. And so... (laughs) I, you know, I like to think that I'm like up to date on technology, but clearly I'm not like I'm a grandmother because it never occurred to me that there would be an app to help with sobriety. (laughs) Right? Right? No way. Yeah. I was like an app for sobriety. Yeah. Yeah. Totally, totally left field. Yeah. um, Yeah. So you, you found because of the post, you went to the app store mm-hmm. and I downloaded I, I you know I don't remember exactly I feel like I downloaded it and then you know was drunk and forgot I downloaded it. <laughs> it's just hanging out on my phone and then I'm like I'm like oh what's this and then you know so but within a couple of days or so, let's call I mean I don't remember details but yeah, yeah so I, I have the I am sober app on my phone this is a so like beginning of October 2021 mm-hmm. I open it for the first time I sign up I get a couple of days of sobriety. I uh, end up drinking because of a stressful situation. And I'd some like delete the app, you know, next day or day, like I re-downloaded it. <laughs> I back up, you know, it's like my dating apps, right? Like I sign in, I scroll, I delete, I sign back up, you know. So it's that, right? Like, but, but I, I will say I only deleted, I deleted once. And then re-added it the next day. And then I think I had like a, another week of like pretty cons- consistent drinking. Mm-hmm. But then on October the 12th, 
2021, I, that was like the first time that was the first day of like a, a real actual stint with sobriety. And I joined, so I didn't, of course, I, well, I didn't know the app, exi- I didn't know that apps existed at all for sobriety. I didn't know when I signed up for I Am Sober that there was a community element to it. I thought it was just a counter. And I was like, but that's great because then I don't have to keep track of it. Like I've got too much going on, you know, ping ponging through my mind all the time anyway. So cool. Let it count for me. <laughs> and also like the idea of that visualization, because I was like, that could be useful, you know, to keep you accountable. Yeah. Well, just as like cool to like watch the days tick up, you know, satisfy some OCD part of my brain. And yeah. And so I think I thought it was day two, but you know, when we were talking about this and I looked at my calendar in the app, I, it might've been day zero of the, like the, the, this longer stint mm-hmm. or, or it was sometime within that first week, but I joined. So you're, you're thinking it's a daily counter and then all of a sudden you see a community button. Mm-hmm. You click the community button and you're scrolling through and then what do you see next? And then at some point I must have seen the one of the ads for, or, or not, it's not an ad, but just somebody saying like, hey, we do these unofficial Zoom meetings. Sober squad. You know, yeah, the sober squad, exactly. Or it, were, it might have even been one of the mixed, you know, where they t- talk about like the ladies groups. And but I think this was before the sober town and before, I don't know. Anyway, it was, you know, it, yeah, a, a meeting calendar. And I was like, you know, I, I think the pandemic for this, because had the pandemic not happened and had I not had to be on Zoom all the time for my job and be on camera all the time for my job, I never probably would have joined that Zoom meeting. But at this point, I was like, I'm on Zoom all day, every day. Who cares? You know, not even who cares. I was terrified. But I was like, well, you know, I can just I can join and just listen. <laughs> and I ended up I don't know why. Well, no, I think I do know why. So it was Steve K and A-Rod were the hosts of my first meeting. <laughs> and I don't really remember exactly who was there, but the the group of people who were there who were so incredibly welcoming and kind that I felt, I wouldn't say I felt comfortable, like immediately comfortable, because that's probably a bit of a stretch, but I, I just felt accepted. You know, and, and, you know, I'm hearing these people say their, their introductions and saying like X, Y, Z months, days, months, years of sobriety. And I'm like, again, I don't remember if it's day zero, but I'm like, I'm day zero, you know, like, like, wow, hi, you know, or, or whatever day it was early day. And, but instead of, you know, instead of people being like, oh, you know, it was like, they were saying it's that the fact that you're here is incredible. Like, right. You know, and so I just, I felt, yeah, I felt welcomed and I felt like, wow, these people are amazing. And it was a very different kind of feeling that I got from this group than I did from that other, you know, sobriety group thing that I mentioned before. And so, you know, because of that, I started coming back to meetings and I ended up getting 60 days sober until just so so in December of 2021 I reset three times so it wasn't a binge not not that it matters but it was like three different or separate days in December and this is when I filed this is when the divorce went through from my ex I was starting a new job there were some things happening and 
it's, you know, they say, and Viv, correct me on this, but it's something like if you're not working, you're either working toward recovery or you're working toward addiction. Yeah. And, and so I knew that like, I knew that I was not clear in my mind that I was like, for sure, a thousand percent ready to like never drink again. And to be fully honest, I don't know that I could say that today, but I knew then that I, I like, I knew a relapse was coming. I just knew it. Like I just wasn't like in my heart. I was like, I, it's, it's probably going to happen. And so it did, you know, on the last time I drank was New Year's Eve. I wish I could say it was because I was out like with an amazing group of people and having a great time. But <laughs> I was sitting right here in this armchair with my iPad and my two bottles of wine. And, you know, I passed out in this armchair and I woke up at 3 a.m. And I, since I moved here, every single New Year's morning, even when I was drunk, or well, or like hungover or, you know, had been drinking the night before, I would get up and go join a group on the beach with that, the, the lady I told you about, the sober lady. It's a tradition she started when she got sober that she went and would go watch the sunrise on the beach on New Year's morning. Wow. So I've done that every year I've lived here, except this year because I was too drunk to go. I woke up at 3 a.m. I would have needed to, maybe, or maybe it was 4, who cares? Like, I would have needed to leave at, I don't know, like 6 a.m. And I knew that I was not okay to get in my car. And so I went back to sleep and I woke up at 11 a.m. on New Year's Day. I never sleep till 11 a.m. I mean, I'm, you know, like that's crazy to me. So I wake up at 11 a.m. on New Year's Day and I'm like, I can't believe you did that, you know? Like you missed like that has been such an important you like you've you've drug your drunk ass not drunk I've never like wasn't driving down there drunk but like your super hungover self down to that beach every time and you didn't you didn't do it this year like you broke your own tradition because the other years I still managed it and then this year I didn't manage it and then I was like that time the only person I let down was myself. Because nobody, like, nobody else, nobody cares if I show up at the beach or not, you know? It's not something that I planned with my kid and I let him down. He was with his dad. Like, I let myself down. And I was pissed. And I think that's, it was good to be angry at myself about that. So my, I always, when I, when I've reset before, I try to do it for, like, midnight or like you know military clock zero 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 of the next day because you know of course I don't ever like my last drink might have been at five o'clock in the evening or nine o'clock or I don't know like I never really know exactly when and I don't ever really know when the alcohol is out of my system for like fully and you know as as you mentioned it can actually take much longer than we even realize but blah whatever like my thing has been like this this last day is the last day of drinking is I'm going to start it for the start of the next day. And that's going to be my reset time. So I tried to set my uh, IAS for like that 0000 for New Year's Day, right? There was some kind of glitch in the app that I even wrote to tech support about because I'm dorky like that. <laughs> and I don't remember the details and it doesn't matter. But what it it means is that like because of that weird glitch and I think it had to do with the year changing over my actual like my official now reset 
because I couldn't get that zero, zero, zero that I wanted so badly, is 23.59 on New Year's Eve. So that means that when the year changes this year, like from 2022 to 2023, that is when I will hit my one year of sobriety. Yay! We're going to be heading into October. So you're 10 months sober. Uh, Well, I'll be nine months at the end of September. Yeah. Yeah. So you're entering your 10 months in October. Yeah. And your year in December, which is right around the corner. So that's exciting. Yeah. And I like (laughs) I told I told you this before, but and it's so dumb. But you know what? It doesn't actually matter that it's a dumb reason to stay sober. But one of the (laughs) I think one of the reasons the sobriety and one of the small reasons sobriety has stuck this time is because I don't want to sully my right perfectly well, it used to be blue. I just changed the the theme of, of IAS. So now I think it's like red. But like the the calendar, you know, it's like you look at it's like, look at all that. Like it's all it's blue, you know, for all of 2022. And if I reset, I'm going to put a gray in there. and I don't want to mess that up. So, <laughs> I mean, it's dumb. And yeah, if it keeps me sober, who cares? I wanted us to go back a little bit. Is your Sunday's rituals that you also have, which is your bird church. Right. So in October of 2020, which was about a month after moving out of the house I shared with my husband, I started volunteering at a local wildlife shelter every Sunday morning. And because this shelter, wildlife shelter, uh, mostly helps birds, I, and because, you know, it's Sunday morning, I, I started calling it bird church. And so, yeah, uh, basically every Sunday morning since October of 2020, with some random exceptions of being sick or traveling or something, I've been been at Bird Church. And the reason I started then is because, you know, before, since my husband was only home on the weekends, I felt like I needed to spend time with him during the week. I couldn't do it because I'm working and, you know, child. But yeah, once once we weren't living together anymore, it, it... you know, allowed me that time. And my son was with his dad, so it, it just allowed that time. Tell me at the experience of, because now you're doing it, you're doing it in sobriety. What's, do you, what difference do you see? Right. So, you know, I do, like, as I said, I work full time, Monday through Friday. I was still drinking during the week, of course, but like weekends are kind of like, okay. And especially, you know, once my kid was with his dad, it's like, this is when I can really go big with my drink date because I don't have to get up to work and my kid's not here, right? So like those are going to be heavier drinking days. But I had bird church on Sunday mornings and the shift starts at 8 a.m. And so I knew if I had a heavy night of drinking on Saturday, I was going to show up to bird church hungover, smelling of alcohol and all the things, which I basically, that's and that's what happened for the first year that I worked there. And... I often, but I, it's also that thing where, and I, this used to be when I would go to the, still go to the gym at 6 a.m., but after I entered that really heavy drinking phase when I was still living in Georgia, you know, I'd be next to somebody on a treadmill and I'd be like horrified because I'm thinking they can smell all of the booze just coming off of my skin. Like I must just stink. And it was the same thing with fur charts because, you know, you're, you're handling animals you're clean, you know, you're working very closely together. And I guess I was lucky because we were in masks at first. So that probably like hid some of my alcohol stench, but like, you know, that kind of only hides 
so much. And then then at some point, we're not in masks anymore. And it's, you know, and you can also just see in a person that they're not, they don't look, you know, they're not okay. And, you know, what we do at Bird Church can be, I mean, there's some pretty like gross work, you know, okay. so it's like stuff that's kind of hard to do when you're sober, but then when you're really hungover and nauseous and exhausted and like, you're just like, but like, most importantly, I guess I was, I was so embarrassed because I, I felt like they, everybody could see, like every, there's, I mean, it's, we're, it's, it's the director and then there's two or three volunteers and that's it. So it's like, you know, I just, it's not like we're in a big group of people. It, you know, I just was like, it, it's like when you feel like you're wearing your dirtiest, darkest, darkest secret, like written across your chest. That's how I felt, you know? You're almost, like I said, you're almost at 10 months doing it. How does it feel now? I think, well, you know, as I said, with the, the disgusting jobs are a little easier to do because I'm not feeling physically ill anymore, right? But almost more importantly, and this applies not only to Bird Church, but to other, all areas of life, I am more present because I'm not either thinking about how much I was drinking before or kind of out of it because of how much I was drinking or thinking about if I can start drinking, like if and when and how much. And there was this constant, this, this just uh, like Ferris wheel of thoughts in my mind every single day that involved alcohol, just always spinning, right? It's like, it, it becomes, you know, yeah, it's just like, it's, it's incessant. And it, and it's also, you know, I, I was thinking about this yesterday. I took my son for a bike ride and it was four-ish in the afternoon and we were gone for an hour. And I was thinking, had this been a year ago, I wouldn't be doing this bike ride with him because it's already, you know, it's five, it's past five o'clock. And I would be thinking about how quickly I could get home to start drinking. Or, I mean, if it was, I mean, it was a weekend, so maybe I'd, I would have already been drinking. Who knows, you know? You've got alcohol and it's always, or your addiction is always trying to pull you or you're, or, you know, or alternatively, it's like you're always being drawn to or focused on your addiction. It's like when you're trying to speak to somebody at a restaurant, but right out of your peripheral vision or in your peripheral vision is this television, you know, it's like, so you can never fully focus on the person in front of you. And that's how I felt like life was. Because, That's yeah. Perfect analogy. Perfect analogy. The chatter of the alcohol. The chatter. Yes. It's constant. So the other thing that I wanted to, to bring up is I thought it was really interesting and I loved it. I asked why, why is your name the big win? When I was still drinking, I was wretchedly hung over one morning at Bird Church and a local journalist came to do, uh, she wanted to write a piece on the volunteers. And so she was interviewing me. And I, the reason I remember I was wretchedly hungover is because there's a picture of me in the local newspaper with, I think I was with a fawn, help, like, you know, doing something with a fawn. And I look at it and I just know how hungover I was. I, I don't know that necessarily anybody else can see that in the picture, but I know, right? And that's, you know, that's shameful to me. 
And also, you know, again, the same thing, like this woman is close to me and I'm like, I stink of alcohol. But that part aside, she asked me what my favorite part of volunteering at the wildlife shelter was. And I told her that when we are able to rehabilitate and release a bird, which is obviously our goal, what we want to do, then that is the big win. And so that's where my name came from. That just makes me so emotional because it's it's exactly what, you know, not just you, but what, what we all are. You know, it's the big win. How perfect. And I don't know that I necessarily was thinking of it that way when I chose it as my username. But, you know, sobriety is is also the big win, right? If we can achieve that, that's a huge win for, for us, for our families, for everybody. Yeah, it spills over to everything. I also wanted to have Liz on here because just the amount of support that you give this community, you know, you are, you, you well, beginning with, uh, now you host Sober Squad with Penny, every old Penny, every Thursday. And how do you go from like your life being, you know, one thing and then in the app and now going to your first Zoom and now all of a sudden I'm hosting <laughs> and you're so I'll let you talk about it, but I'll let you talk about it. So I wish I could say that I was so, you know, bold and, and, uh, what's the word extroverted and like, let me do everything I can to help this community. But the truth of it is she's modest. (laughs) Oh no, it's no, it's, it's the truth. I, as, as he has for many of us in this community who have attended Zooms or otherwise interacted with him, Steve K reached out to me early on. And as I mentioned, he was one of the hosts of the first meeting that I attended. And we connected over, I think, first Discord and then Telegram. And I, at some point, was talking to him about how that same feeling of like standing on the periphery, but not really necessarily feeling a part of anything. And he suggested, he's like, well, I mean, a good way to get visibility in the community and to to get to know people better and just to, you know, be of service is to host a meeting. And I, you know, he suggested it a few times and I was like, you know, I there were actual legit reasons for why I couldn't do it the first few times he suggested it. And then there, you know, and then suddenly like I didn't have any more excuses. <laughs> and he's like, hey, Liz, so we need dad life needs a co-host for a Thursday for the Thursday meetings in March. Do you want to co-host with them? And I was like, uh, <laughs> like I do, but I don't <laughs> you know? like terrified. Because, you know, I'd, I'd had that 60 days, but then this was, you know, month three or it started like not even he was asked because if he was asking in February, I was only in, you know, month two of the this next stint or hopefully last and staying permanent stint of sobriety. But, you know, I ultimately said yes. And then, you know, I think through through this next, you know, 
since doing that or just just being at, at meetings more and more and more and as the community itself grows and new people come in. So now I'm connected to people, you know, through the app, through Telegram. I don't really use Discord much, but, you know, that's also another avenue that people can connect. And that has been absolutely essential much more important than the calendar staying blue than, you know, in keeping me sober during this time. So, well, I think it's, it, like I said, not, you're very modest about the things that you've done for this community. Uh, it all started with dead life and, and early on hosting. And now with, with old Penny early on and, and, and still co-hosting and doing, you know, the work. And you still had taken on, you took on the readings and for a good while, you know, t- tell us about that, how that started. Yeah. So at some point, Polly, who started the readings and had been doing them for, I believe, about a year, it's an incredibly long time. And what an amazing contribution to the community. And of course, I used to listen to them and love them. And at some point, she stepped back from them. And Sober Seedling took them on and did them for a while, but then had something where she also had to temporarily take a step back. And so I offered to fill in the space for however long she needed. And so I did, I did them alone for a while. And now, which I love this, now Sober Seedling and I are doing, we're switching off. So every other week, one or the other of us does the readings. Which is beautiful. I, and that's, that's the big, that's the big win. But that's, <laughs> that's the big change of not being able to do things like that. While in active drinking addiction, we come back and we're, you know, our sober selves and we can actually take on whatever it is, you know, and take space. And when someone needs help, that's the beauty, Liz. Your story is one of, like I said, it's it's a journey and it's a hero's journey. Because you're in you're in the race of saving your own life. And in saving your own life, it's like, you know, you come back and you come back as a powerhouse. And I've told you this because you're you know, hosting the sober squads, <laughs> you're too hottest. And now, and the readings, you step in and you're like, all right, I'm going to help. And also the other thing that I thought was really interesting is during the trajectory of your sobriety, you went through, you made the decision that for your mental health, I don't want to say just the working conditions, you weren't happy. And I say mental health because when you're unhappy, it takes on a toll into your happiness, you know? So so to be able to now, if you really think about it, you you went from before being someone that needed to please others and you were okay with that. And in an uncomfortable situation, you're like, I don't have to deal with this. And you resigned. And tell us about that time because it it's not sobriety isn't unicorns and rainbows. And especially when you have a year of sobriety, you know, you're going through 
the year of sobriety, let alone three months, let alone a week. But you've been sober through it all. Yeah. So there were, I guess, and, you know, in this nine months of sobriety, there have been two particularly big things that have happened that I've had to deal with without without alcohol. So that's been a learning experience for me because, of course, before alcohol was what I did to cope. I, in June, had to resign my job and I have been working my whole life. I've never resigned a position without having another one lined up. And so we've talked about I'm a single mom. And so that was a very scary time for me. And I had to resign because it became clear to me that I was going to be fired or let go, replaced, whatever. And my manager was very unhappy with me, even though I felt like I was trying my best. But you were unhappy as well. Yeah, I was. It it wasn't a good uh, yeah. It wasn't a good mix. It wasn't a good mix and it wasn't a good in- environment. And I only know this because I'm I'm you know, I was I've always been girl fanning over you. And <laughs> like I'm boring. Why? <laughs> because I would see you, I would see your page, your wall, and I in mine, I you know, in my sobriety, I go back and I, I look to to people to remind myself, you know, of I don't want to say the struggle, but to to honestly honor and remember when everyone's going through that journey and who else like you're like you do who else can I say hey how, how, how's it how's it going man you know how are you doing which when I went through my depression you also Viv are you okay you know you'd be on camera and you'd you'd tape that you know, yourself and you would you would send me a hi and I was in my depression so like I told you I've, I've been girl fanning and reading your posts and listening to your messages. And when I'm going through my depression and I can't participate in Telegram and I can't support the group and you're in the group, but I'm listening to your readings and you're talking about this and you're also talking about this now with the com- in the community and in Telegram. So I'll let, I'll let you tell the rest of the story but it's very important to understand that things that someone may think that are intolerable to handle sober with new coping mechanisms that you've created for yourself, how you've dealt with them. How did you stay sober? Yeah, that's, that's a good question. And thank you for all the really kind things you just said about me. I appreciate that. Yep. So I think with with the job situation, it just, it became a a toxic environment for me. And so, you know, with that, plus the, the, the thought that I was going to be fired or let go or whatever, that my job was not secure. And I didn't want a, like a firing or on my resume because next companies often ask, have you been let go or fired before and why? And, you know, I just, didn't want to have to explain that. Plus, I thought, you know, I'm clearly not a good fit for my manager. And so 
it's it's better for my mental health and my sobriety if I leave. And also that allows, it's better for her because then she can find somebody who is a better fit for her, you know? And I think, so that choice was in part to protect my sobriety because the way things were going, the stress level and fear that I had over that instability and the demands of that situation, I could tell were potentially going to lead me down a path, like a bad path. Also, I had, whereas with previous jobs, you know, I could, uh, you know, look at my phone on occasion and like catch up on a message or, you know, whatever. I, I didn't have that with this job. There was no, for at least to me, you know, no real work-life balance. I was often, or I was putting in the extra hours. And so I wasn't really taking, I wasn't taking a lunch break. I, and, you know, so I didn't have time to kind of do the things that I needed to do to maintain my sobriety. Like go to, by the end of the day, I was so exhausted and so sick of being in front of the computer. I wasn't going to Zooms. I wasn't able to keep up with or respond to telegram messages or, or look in the app. And so just all those things that, you know, that are kind of important, especially in early months of sobriety, at least for me to, to sustain sobriety, I wasn't able to do. And so I just knew that it wasn't, or that it, it could end badly. And so luckily for me, I was able to I had enough of a tiny buffer, a financial buffer, to be able to resign and have a little bit of time to look for a new role. But what ended up happening before when I'd looked for new roles because of what I do, it's like niche enough to where I was really lucky to pretty easily and quickly find a new position. But now, you know, in the time when I actually need it easily and quickly, I... I'm not able to find anything or, or I'm finding jobs. I'm applying, I'm interviewing. I think I, I didn't do a, a final tally, but there were, was it six companies, five or six companies where I got through the multiple. So we're talking five to seven interviews per company. So you make it to that final decision point and I got rejected. So now I'm, I'm spending, it was over the, and those are just the, those types of interviews. I'm also doing all of these initial interviews that kind of dead end immediately, right? So I was lucky in that I was interviewing a lot, but I was doing a ton of interviews and not getting anything and making it far enough to be told no. And so then I'm getting in my head about like, you're not good enough. The, the things that this previous work situation made me to believe about myself and my capabilities as a professional are true. Nobody's going to hire you you know, and, and it's, it's this, you know, spiral into as time as months passed and right. my financial buffer is diminishing and, you know, there's no plan B, you know, it's, I, I start to, I get into a really dark space and yeah, before obviously alcohol would have been it. I mean, I will say the one nice thing about not leaning on alcohol is that it, you're not spending the money on it because I couldn't be spending the money on extras. So there was, thank God for that. But 
the way I was able to do it sober in this difficult period is that I, I had to release and I wasn't, I'm not great at this, but I did my very best to release some expectations for myself. So I went into this thinking like, ah, oh, all this time, all I've wanted is some time off for myself. I'm like, this is great. I've got some time off. Like I'm going to find a new job in a few weeks. Everything's great. And of course, like that's not what happened at all. But I had this list, you know, I always have lists, like rules and lists. Like that's what my head is full of. It's constant. And I ha- so I had this list of things I wanted to do, like deep clean your house, start writing a book, take that bird drawing course you've always wanted to take, learn more about veganism, you know, like just all of this stuff. And and I, what I found instead of knocking things on my list is that I was sitting on my couch staring at the wall in like basically in filth, you know, like, I mean, not like, no, I not like, yeah, and not showering nearly as much as I should be. And to be fair, I'm not around people except my kid, poor kid, but like, yeah, just, but I was, I was doing, I was waking up, I was applying for jobs. I was interviewing when I had interviews every week. I was keeping myself, my dogs and my kid alive. And that was basically it. And and you were doing the readings. It was, yeah, I was doing the readings. I mean, it's early morning readings. It's something that you're still, you know what I mean? Yes, you're going through a, de- a depression from what, you're de- what you had told me, how you felt. But the coping mechanism is no longer there. And you're able to take care of your child. You know, there's no blackout. There is, you're taking even care of the community by still doing the reading. Keeping an keeping in contact and I think it's something to say something that you told me that I thought was really beautiful about your phone yeah so I I realized this just kind of another reason for staying sober and you know and in, in, in that time of depression I I was I'd kind of drawn inward a lot as I tend to do but not entirely and I was in some ways pushing myself to to talk to people about it even as as uncomfortable as that was because you know I just I don't want to take up space right so and but I I pushed myself so that that helped through this period but you know I also realized just from the sobriety perspective there was one day I mean this wasn't this this summer but at some point recently I I remember picking up my phone in the morning and seeing notifications for, you know, from the I Am Sober app, from Telegram, and, you know, other things. Maybe somebody, like, sent me something from Instagram. I don't know. But, like, what I realized is that all of the notifications that I had on my phone were related or were from people or from the app or something that was related to sobriety. And I, and so it was this kind of, I don't know what the right word is, like, it was just this realization that were I not sober, or were I to, to decide to return to drinking, that I, or or had I not, you know, joined this app, this community, that none of that would be there. That I would have woken up to a completely rake, except maybe my iPhone telling me how much screen time I use, you know, and 
I, it just, it made me realize how, how I went from feeling so isolated, so alone, so yeah, just not belonging in this world to finding people who are supportive, not to say that there aren't supportive, loving people in other places in life, but like to finding this community that brings so much joy and love and support to my day. So that's a big motivator for me to continue sobriety because this community is so important to me. And I mean, obviously, like I care about everybody so deeply in this community, but also selfishly to have a community as somebody who's never felt part of one before. That's that, that's my medicine, you know? So beautiful. It is so beautiful to come to that realization that there's a place where we fit in. Yeah. I was just going to say with the, you know, with the getting through this, this dark period, this recent dark period, sober and releasing those expectations, I think it was, and forgive me if I'm misquoting, I think it was Steve Kay who said, if the only thing that I accomplished today is not drinking, then I've succeeded for the day. And for me, it, what I did was like, if the, I, I got to a place of, I have all of my shoulds. But if the if I'm able to, you know, keep my kid dogs me alive, do the the job stuff that I have to do to to try to find a job and, you know, not drink, then that's got it just it has to be enough. Like it has to be enough, Liz, until you can get to a place where you can do more. And you can't, you have to stop beating yourself up about it. It's like you have to release all of the shoulds and the expectations because this is all you're like you're flailing. You're trying to keep your like head above water and this is all you've got to give. But if you can accomplish these things, then you're, it's okay. And the rest of it can wait. And so that's kind of where I got with it. And the other kind of difficult thing that I've had recently is Ginger, my dog who I've talked about pretty extensively in this podcast. She had to be put down two weeks ago, a week ago. Uh, yeah two weeks ago. And her death is difficult for me. She was, I was very lucky that she was able to go live with my parents and live a very relaxed, wonderful, retired life with them for six years. And so she, she had, you know, the long life that I'd hoped for for Nori that didn't happen. It's, you know, obviously still a death that's, hard to process and there's a lot of grief around losing her but what I realized as I started to kind of process this grief about Ginger is all of the delayed processing of grief that came up with her death that I had not yet fully dealt with because the entire time I'd been trying to to drown that grief in alcohol it's like that thing that like keeps like bopping up to the surface, right? You know, like I keep pouring more alcohol on it and then it there it pops back up, but then more, you know, and it's like, so it's never, like I never take it out of the water. You know what I mean? The cork that's being pulled down and you're just drowning it out and drowning it out, but it keeps falling above up. Popping back up and I'm like, not you again. And so, you know, even like in the, earlier in the podcast, me get as emotional as I still am talking about something that happened six, almost, 
yeah, six years ago. It's because, you know, I mean, I, I don't think grief ever goes away per se, but some of that is that I haven't really dealt with it. And so, you know, and it's like, so it's not just about Ginger dying. It's about Nori dying. It's about losing both dogs that weekend. It's about the hospital stay. It's about both of my marriages ending because these dogs were parts of both of those marriages. It's all of that, you know, it's, it's just everything. And so that's, it's just, that's been an interesting lesson for me to learn in sobriety is that I can try to drown it out for as long as I want to, but I mean, assuming that I don't drink myself into the ground, at some point I am going to have to deal with it. So I can keep delaying, 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 drown, drown, drown. But at some point I do have to face this. And yeah, so that's been, it's just, it's been a lesson. And you're doing it so gracefully. Uh, I don't know about that. (laughs) You saw me ugly cry earlier. Seen each other ugly cry, so <laughs> we're not ugly crying. We're beautifully crying. We're giving ourselves space for emotions, which is something that we didn't do for such a long time. Oh, it's such a beautiful thing. I also wanted to bring up in all of this, in sobriety, also the other thing that it allows you and or that I've seen from afar and you talking about it is also more room for savings because now it's not going towards alcohol more of a buffer you went and visited dry mountain mama Mm -hmm. yeah well i mean that's like part of yeah i think like you know obviously money not spent on alcohol can be spent other places and i was able to go to the the niagara falls meetup to meet some members of the IS community there and then to Colorado to meet Dry Mountain Mama or to see her again. And yeah, that's been really beautiful. And there's that, the Moab meetup in October that I'm going to be attending as well. And they're both going to be able to give each other a big hug. <laughs> I get to meet in the flesh. Do you have legs? <laughs> I'm excited. I'm excited. And so I I wanted to, I mean, these are so many beautiful gifts. You're part of now, sober, you know, not, not that not before, but you're part of the Sobertown podcast, now sharing your recovery story, contributing for, you know, for people out there listening to We Do Recover, and I call it discover because we discover that we like that we like to share our feelings and that we like to participate and host and that we are part of the group and that we do fill take up space and fill spaces when needed. And which was really surprising when I asked you, I was like, well, so you didn't go through any certain means to get sober and you're like, no. No, it was just, you know, a little bit of adding grace, a little bit of sober curious and IAS app. I thought that it was, you know, so that just proves that there is not just one way. You're part of the uh, Telegram group. And I mean, I have the pleasure with a bunch of other ladies 
that. And then I know you belong to other groups because I'm on some of them. But it's like, oh, not that Liz again. Can't get away from her. (laughs) Like, I'll find you. (laughs) But I think it's, you know, that we have this special group of sisterhood that we all share and we can take up space and we can put put our feelings there openly, honestly, without any shame. And then everybody comes in and just holds each other in the difficult parts and in the beautiful parts. So I think that's a, a beautiful, you're such a beautiful example of what community and connection is. This is what community and connection is, you know, because like I was telling you, I was like, you were like, no, I do it, you know, uh, because it's needed. And I, I don't do it for, you know, this or that. But I, and I was telling you that I thought like, there's so many people that we can name off that have contributed to society in so many uh, movements and, you know, endorsed and empowered a group of people in any type of setting. But you're in the part of the, you're part of the empowerment of being a sober warrior, as Drifter would put. You're there, you're in the trenches, you're shedding light and giving example. And through your journey, you're able to, that we see going through, you know, everything that life throws at you. And there's Liz. She's sober. Still kicking. Still kicking. (laughs) As much as she's tried not to be. (laughs) You know, and and sometimes, yeah, it looked like that. It looks like we're angry and pissed and everything, but we get to feel it all, right? Because that's what sobriety is it happy yeah right it's every flavor under the sun and doing it and feeling it sober awakened and it it only gets better only gets better and the you know now being with your son fully when i asked you which is the next question that i'm about to ask you what is your why to stay sober that you would like to impart and share with other people. This is something very personal to you, but the takeaway, what is your why? Why do you do it? My biggest why is my son. And aside from that, there, so a dear friend of mine from the community sent me a coffee mug that says, another morning without regrets. And the freedom that I feel from not having my brain be in the clutches of alcohol or not of addiction. And, uh, you know, I, I, the, there's all of the rules and the lists and the, the, the ruminations, as you said, so well, all of that to, to be free of that is, has been life-changing for me. And I, I I, I don't ever want to have to fall back into that that's not to say that i won't we know we're all human i don't know i don't not a fortune teller as much as i'd like to try with my tarot cards Full <laughs> job of predicting the future for my job with those by the way <laughs> this reader needs some training <laughs> but yeah and there's somebody and i wish i could remember who said this but somebody said to you that waking up not hung over never gets old 
did I say that right? Waking up. Yeah. <laughs> hung over. Never, get Never gets old. Yeah. And that's, that is so true because instead of waking up with that, that did I drink? How much did I drink? How did I embarrass myself? I can just wake up and be like, oh, another day sober. Thank God. <laughs> and it's that's that relief, you know? And I thought, and I thought it was really interesting and I don't want to lose this thought because I, I knew it was something important that you said. And I wrote down on my notes about 10 seconds at a time, which the name says it all, right? Yeah. So, and I am going to badly paraphrase her. And I, I believe she's the one who said this. So forgive me if I'm completely misciting. But she said something along the lines of the first like 21-ish plus days of sobriety. I don't remember the exact number, but those, those first weeks, let's call it three, four weeks of sobriety are the hardest. And if you, as I did, are, you know, even before downloading the app, even are doing this, you know, couple days at a time or a week or two two weeks, like I did in the spring, but then resetting, if you're resetting within that, you know, couple week period over and over and over again, what you're doing is you're putting yourself through the very hardest part of sobriety and so that it becomes very difficult to to what am I trying to say here gain momentum yeah and and it's also hard to see the light at the end of the tunnel because you're always doing the hardest part right so it it, it's very easy I think in those first couple weeks there are a few weeks to think that it's something that's unachievable and and I remember I mean I've been there so many times right I remember those first few weeks and how hard they were so there's also that healthy fear people talk a lot about that healthy fear and sobriety there's the healthy fear of understanding that one sip is enough to blow the entire thing for me and set me right back where I was at my worst and then that that healthy fear of having to go through those early days of sobriety again and knowing that probably if I do, it won't just be once. It'll be multiple, many times until I can get my, what did they say, the wheels underneath me? <laughs> and that's not that idiom, but you know what I mean? Like until I can get some more traction, a length of the, the sobriety or sober time under my belt again, you know? Yeah. Definitely. It's, it, it is. It's so uh, what stands out is like what you said. So would you say like your why to stay sober is that one, that healthy fear. And two, you know, your son, definitely. Yeah. I know how much you love your son. He's for sure the, the number one reason. Yeah. A huge motivator. Uh, and you know, and, and the joy that you bring us. The joy y'all bring. I see. I Viv, I need to hire you to do my marketing, like my personal brand marketing, because you make me sound like pretty amazing. And I'm like, who are you talking about? Because that's not me. But I appreciate you for saying all of these nice things about me. I mean, like, I really feel honestly that that in, in a ways that I'm like this selfish leech on the community because I'm like, y'all are so amazing and doing so many wonderful things for me. And I'm so grateful for you. But like, you know, I don't, I don't know. I just, 
I, I appreciate you. I'm really grateful for everything, for for having me on the podcast, for all the time you've spent listening to me blabber. Oh. <laughs> and just for everything that you do for the community. You know, yeah. you do so much for, for me individually. And I think it's safe to say for the, you know, larger community. And I'm grateful. Thank you. I think, you know what, I think it's just something that happens automatically that we just, we finally find a space where we fit and it happens that we just feel so much because we've talked about this, you and I, we feel compassion at some point for ourselves. And then that compassion spills out to the people that are struggling and we really want to help. And the way that we can help is this is being in service, you know, because it feels good. It feels good. Yeah. You know, so I wanted to thank you so much, Liz. Thank you. Thank you. Thank you. And this podcast is amazing. Going to touch, you know, millions, millions of people around the world. If they, if they felt up to listening to 20 hours of me rambling. <laughs> beautiful, beautiful, beautiful. So I look forward to seeing you in real life in Moab. And thank you for your time.